It was a dark and stormy night. I was wearing my fedora and drinking a cup of stale coffee. I had a gun in my hand, and then I threw it away, because guns are dangerous, and I don't like them. Anyway, here's a podcast about noirs. Everybody, welcome to the first ever Iron List. You didn't run that by me at all. Well, you didn't come at me with any suggestions for titles, so I just went with whatever I came up with. Is that a pun on Iron Fist? Yeah, to rule something with an Iron Fist. Okay. We're going to rule the podcast airways with an Iron List. Okay. Yeah. It was that or Taxonomy Today. I like that better, you see. <laughs> I know, I know you do. I figured you would. <laughs> uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. My name is Whitney Seibold. Uh, Whitney Taxonomy Seibold. <laughs> and, I, uh, I write for IGN and I wrote for TV Guide. And you're really cool. Oh, and, thank you. And uh, here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we're looking for new content, but also new ways to get our listeners involved. And we realize that a lot of our listeners really like it when we do list episodes. You get to recommend a ton of movies. Uh, but they're kind of long and complicated, and we really want to do them as well as we possibly can. And we didn't want to do one a week because... Uh, well, well that, we'd run out of time. We'd, we'd run out of time, and also that's a little tiresome. Uh, the internet lives and dies by lists, or as uh, as they're called in the biz, listicles. No, they're called listicles if they're short. Oh, are they? Listicles are like, here's mm. a picture of something, here's two sentences about it. That's yeah. a listicle. I suppose so. Yeah, a list is uh, supposed to actually include some commentary at least. And uh, as, as we learned from our, our various uh, internet outings, uh, internet editors love lists. Yep. Uh, a, because they're easily consumed, mm -hmm. and B, because when they're set up in a slideshow format, it counts as more than one click on a single article. Yeah, every time you click on a slideshow, that counts as an extra page view for the website. That's a little inside baseball there. Uh, they so love that. It's actually padding out the numbers a little bit. It's totally dishonest, and that's the only reason listicles exist. Well, that's not the only uh, reason listicles exist. I actually am not against the idea of the list format, or the listicle format even, because it is an easy way to consume a lot of recommendations. These are, we're all saying that these are things that are worth highlighting and they're all going to be in one place and they're typically found by people who are looking for something. So for example, uh, we put out a poll on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And everybody who subscribes to the Patreon, even at the lowest tier got to vote. And, we give a bunch of suggestions, and the suggestion that you voted for on mass, it was actually a runaway, was the best film noirs. How appropriate. This is hashtag Noirvember, uh, which is a popular hashtag mm. in film Twitter, if you're unaware. Um, and as a result, we're going to do a, a big podcast right now, which we recommend a ton of film noirs, or films noir, if you want to get technical. Uh, and that's just, if you're looking for film noirs, you can find this, and then you'll get a bunch of recommendations, and then mm. we're spreading information. It's the only thing that bothers me about lists and listicles is when the content of it is the most recent mainstream stuff imaginable, because then yeah, the list there was... is there to make you feel better and not to actually introduce you to new cool stuff. Well, and also the overuse and sort of the, the, the way they sometimes zero in on these kind of specialized topics that are completely meaningless. I think just today there was an article on Screen Rant about uh, here's 
10 monsters that are more powerful than Godzilla. It's like, that's kind of a meaningless list. Well, that's geeky, That's, that's just fun to, like, think about monsters, I suppose. Yeah, yeah that's pretty harmless. Mm. But you're right, it's not really fueling the conversation exactly. or making and, people and, aware of rare things. And if, if you are, are a critic or a journalist and you want to produce hard-hitting content, that's not the assignment you want. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's fun. It, yeah. And it gives us an opportunity to do more research in a field or to express, you know, all we've all seen as critics thousands upon thousands upon thousands of movies and we want to share that experience with as many people as possible and highlight films that people need to see so on this first installment of our new monthly podcast the iron list name to be possibly changed later <laughs> we just have to call it something mm. um we will as our at our patreon uh, at our patrons request be doing our picks individual picks our top 10 lists for mm. the best film noirs ever now my own list is a combination of films that i believe are indispensable you know okay. that are that are classics timeless classics they're just they're so damn good you can't leave them off a list but also some films that i feel deserve to be highlighted that maybe don't make every list yeah uh i assume yours is probably somewhat similar uh well when i come up with these lists you know somebody says like come up with a list of the 10 best movies of all time and if you ask 100 critics the 10 best movies of all time you're gonna have similar-ish lists perhaps mm-hmm um, that that's what the whole uh, sight and sound poll is about, and you know Citizen Kane is usually around the top, mm-hmm. if not the very top. Yeah, uh, and you you'll see, see Seven Samurai, Seven up there, Samurai, Two Thousand One Space Odyssey, you know, Vertigo, Tokyo Story. These movies are all going to be near the top of everybody's lists because mm-hmm. they're all great movies, and they're enormously uh, influential. So you yeah, can't escape them exactly. Uh, occasionally, you'll get some daring or perhaps asshole critic who uh, will throw in sort of a curveball intentionally. Yeah, like Paul W.S. Anderson's The Three Musketeers yeah, so on the best films ever made, uh, just to make you think. Yeah, make you think about it and consider it in a new like, way. And Maybe I'm, they're right. And I'm guessing that critic has a legit reason also for including that, but they're, yeah. they're deliberately throwing in a curve. Um, I do that all the time. I'm the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my list is going to be a few classics, uh, a lot of you know, sort of more recent films that you might not think of as film noir. Uh, and you know, like some personal favorites of mine uh, that kind of skew aw- deliberately away from a lot of the classics you might have heard of. Fair enough. Uh, before we get going, two quick things. One, our list format for this show mm. is going to be, we love all of these movies, so we're just going to go through them in no particular order. However... We will end with, if we had to pick... Had to pick a number one. Yeah, some, someone had a rapier to our head. It was just like, tell me, tell me the best film noir ever. We would pick this film. Well, because people hold rapiers to our heads all the time. It's not uncommon in the business. It is not spoken of often, but it is a regular it's current. True. It's true. There's, uh, there's a lot of fencing in the world of film criticism. People do not know. Uh, also, side note, uh, there's construction outside. We don't know how much you can hear, but this is the only time we have to record. So and, sorry. Well, while, they're, while they're ripping apart the strip club that we live next to. Um Los Angeles, classy. Yeah, um, rest in peace, Fantasy Island. Oh, they had this cool crow's nest, too. Well, it, was a, it was a well-known landmark. People would be like, hey, where do you live? I live by the Fantasy Island. They'd yeah. be like, well, oh, okay. it was, before it was Fantasy Island, it was actually a Hawaiian restaurant called Kelbo's. 
Oh, I didn't know It was actually Kelbo's for a long time, and Uh. Kelbo's was well-known less for their food and more for their very powerful cocktails. Ah. And it was painted like up all... It was like a tiki bar. Polynesian stuff. It was a tiki bar. And yeah, yeah, they had the crow's nest that was meant to look like a crow's nest. Uh, And then Kelbo's went under, it remained fallow for a bit, and then, yeah, a a strip club went in, and they kind of lost the tiki theme, even though the name was Fantasy Island. That's too bad. I went into Fantasy Island once, and not during operating hours. (laughs) Like, I didn't go in there to see what what it was like. I went in when they had closed it down for filming. It was regularly used Mm -hmm. as a strip club set in various cop shows. Yeah, uh... It, they, the show they were filming while I was there was It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, there you go. So I, I got to see the strip club as it was dressed up for that show. I'm not sure how much they changed. Probably didn't change the interior that much. Yeah. So I have seen the interior once while they were filming something there. There was... But uh, yeah, even though it was right next door, I never actually bothered to go to Fantasy Island because it was gross. <laughs> uh, the one I remember that they filmed was... Um... Uh, here we go. Blind Justice, starring Ron Eldard. <laughs> I love Ron Eldard. Yeah, that was a one-season wonder. We keep meaning to get to it on Cancel mm-hmm. Too Soon. I remember very distinctly they shot one episode there. Okay. Um, so, anyway, uh, the other thing I want to get to before we get into our list of the best film noir films is, uh, what is noir? Because unlike a lot of genres, it's kind of nebulously defined. If we talked about, for example, the 10 best werewolf movies, it'd be pretty straightforward. If it has a werewolf in it, it counts. Right. But noir isn't a genre that sort of evolved like on its own. It was, it was sort of noticed after the fact. Well, the, the name film noir was applied to a certain type of movies that were already popular at the time. And uh, I, I think it might have been Truffaut who came up with the name. It was definitely the uh, Cahier du Cinema, yeah, which yeah. is a, a very celebrated uh, French film criticism mm-hmm. publication that in the 1950s had an incredible slate of writers, many of whom went on to become some of the best filmmakers mm-hmm. ever, like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this day, they have perhaps the highest possible standards for cinema. Yeah. And their, t- and their year-end lists are bafflingly strict <laughs> and, and kind of and weird as well. Like, there's all, like we were saying, there's always going to be one curveball in the middle. It's like, okay, here's all these like really obscure four-hour-long Thai films that you expected to see. Uh, one year they included uh, the new Twin Peaks TV series on their list. That was their number one best movie That's of the right. year, and a it was movie. a TV it was show. In eighteen hour, eighteen hours of television was their number one film. It's Admittedly, like, if it was an eighteen hour film, I would have said, "Yeah, but come on, yeah, come yeah, they're, on." They're, There's they're gotta really be a line somewhere. Rules. But then they'll include like some big action blockbuster that you don't expect, like Wonder Woman. It's like, well, okay, Wonder Woman's good, but really, Kyer Du Cinema is putting that like on their top ten. Yeah, I think that's let's, interesting. Yeah, let's let's consider this. Their standards life. are so high that if they put Wonder Woman on there, you start thinking, yeah. well, maybe. But then you know, like uh, I remember the year uh, the Lone Ranger came out. Did they put the Lone Ranger? On? They didn't, but I know my boss did. Quentin Tarantino. Oh, I worked yeah. for Quentin Tarantino, and Quentin Tarantino said that was one of the best films of the year. There are some people who are and starting to come around on that film. I'm not one of them. No, I've I don't seen think it, it's... I've seen it like three or four times. I don't need to see it again. It's yeah. bad. It's. I, I got a little better the second time I watched it, and then the third time I watched it, it got bad again. Yeah. Because the second time I was ready for it, but the third time I'm like, no, that's... These, it's, these no, still don't work. None work. of these things work. But anyway, film noir. The idea of film noir uh, is um, the the... French critics at Cahiers du Cinema were big fans and very interested in Hollywood studio product, which, frankly, largely in the critical community, had been largely overlooked as kind of corporate product. Not unlike, say, 
superhero movies are today, mm. where occasionally there's a really, really great one, but a lot of people just go, well, they're fun, but what is there? They're fluff, yeah. Yeah, and then the Cahiers du Cinema uh, critics were like, well, actually, we find, we find something very interesting here. And one of the things that they pointed out was a significant number of mainstream Hollywood cinema existed in a realm of moral ambiguity. Mm. And they were actually linked, if not necessarily by specifics of plot, then by the idea that the entire world in which they inhabit is a moral gray area. Yeah. And that is something that was actually very challenging because at the time, they were mostly working under the auspice of the production code, which yeah. requires that films be very, very mm -hmm. moral. And also, this was uh, this was during the 1940s, for like the late 40s for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, the the early noirs came up during World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there were some but the, the, it, arguably, the, but yeah. yeah. But, and, but you know, the big boom of it was like immediately following the war. So there was this new kind of wave of uh, questioning of the moral order. Because World War II, if, if you sort of look at everything, you know, economics and sciences and philosophy, just the evolution of all of that. World War II was a betrayal of everything. Yeah. All of these positive systems that were supposed to save us. Economics was supposed to save us, but World War II kind of kind of ruined that, and we had to start pouring money into a war effort. That was the way to save economics. Philosophically, it was all about kind of uh, pursuing the self, and uh, it, this was in the 1940s, and kind of 20th century was about, we've, we're kind of at the end of philosophy, and we figured everything out, and now all, we, all, all we're going to do is argue semantics. Mm -hmm. If you study the history of philosophy, that's kind of what, what happened in the 20th century. Well, what do we mean when we say free will? Uh, look, can't we just take for granted we all mean the same thing when we say free will? Right. And, uh, and yeah, and same with, like, the, the state. Politics was supposed to save us. And then in comes World War II, and a genocide happens. It's like, wait a minute, this wasn't supposed to happen. Every, nothing works anymore. Yeah, and it was so inescapable. It was, yeah. So there, the noir, I think, reflected uh, a growing hopelessness in the human heart. And uh, all of a sudden, these big Hollywood products that starred really big stars and were made by gigantic studios started to reflect a, a world, yeah, A, without morals, and mm -hmm. B, without heroes. There was no positivity in these worlds. Yeah, I would argue that the defining characteristic of the film noir, a lot of people will say it's in black and white. It doesn't have to be in black and white. No. A lot of people will say... Like most of mine are in color. Yeah, a lot of people say, uh, oh, it's got to have a private detective. No, it doesn't. A lot of them do because that's a good world mm -hmm. in which to explore moral gray areas where people living outside the law and sort of in it for themselves they, uh, and working for shady they, people. Yeah, they tend to be about crime. That's not a, a requirement, but it's kind pretty of a requirement. Yeah. It's pretty damn common, but it's not necessarily a requirement. Uh, although, to be fair, a lot of movies are about crime. Like, mm -hmm. you, a significant number of films that aren't film noirs also involve crime in some way. Uh, but I would say, yes, the defining characteristic of a film noir is that the film itself is cynical. There are no good people, or if there are, they are victims. They're, they're punished in yeah. some way. They're, they usually for their make, morality. This is one of the reasons why I think Casablanca has elements of film noir, mm -hmm. but in the end, there it does... Well, and tattoo happily, morally. Rick, yeah, morally. Rick, to, Rick is a cynic at, at first until yeah. he realizes that there are causes to fight for, and that yeah. he's actually touched again. It's and actually, it's actually a film will, noir that will, grows yeah, into the, something more positive. Yeah, it's will, an interesting. Will film, always actually. have. But that's what makes it such a good movie, actually. But yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. these uh, the films on our lists, I think, do all do abide by those rules, no matter what era they come from. Yeah. Uh, or. 
And I tried or, to split or country they come from. And I tried to split mine up kind of evenly between old school noir and more what we'd call neo noir. Mm-hmm. Um, the cutoff point for classic film noir and when it becomes quote unquote neo noir, which is uh, movies that are well aware of the noir genre and are now commenting on it consciously. Yeah. Like, uh, it's probably like around the 60s. Reconstructionist Western, yeah. yeah it's yeah. probably around the 60s. It's hard to say there's an exact point, but probably around the 60s is where people started to consciously try mm. to make film noir as opposed to they organically came out of the studio filmmaking process. Uh, so I would like to begin, if I may, mm-hmm. with my uh, uh, first pick, and it's a film that I almost had as my favorite. Mm-hmm. But then I realized there's another film I, I really want to champion more. But this movie is... Even if it's not the best, it is probably the er example of the film noir. It is probably, when you think of a film noir, you are probably thinking of The Maltese Falcon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I thought you were going to say The Asphalt Jungle, but all right. uh, That's also a great one. I Um, actually didn't make my list, but it's up there. It's really great. The Asphalt Jungle is cited as one of the first. Uh, Certainly one of the first. It's also one of the first proper heist movies. That's that's that ever yeah. existed, um, and yeah, the Asphalt Jungle is really, really great. It's about a bunch of hard-boiled men uh, who come together to pull off a really daring heist. It's all shot in black and white, mm-hmm. and everyone's trying to betray each other. And one guy is sleeping with young Marilyn Monroe, who's like <laughs> I think it was like her first big role. Yeah, I, have, um, I, have a, I have at least two heist movies on my list. That's so. nice. Um, I think I have one, but. Right. Um, Anyway, the Maltese Falcons... You're talking about John Huston's, because there were a yes. couple, right? Yeah, this is something people don't realize. There's actually... Uh, there have been two attempts to turn Dashiell Hammett's 1930 novel, The Maltese Falcon, into a hit film. Uh, I believe one was called... I think one was just called The Maltese Falcon, and the other one's called, like, Satan is a Lady. Let me take a look here. Uh, um, um, I'll, I'll look that yeah, up in yeah. a second. But, uh, yeah, the, the plot uh, stars... Have, uh, have you ever read Dashiell Hammett's novel? Um, actually, no, I haven't read that one. I read The Thin Man and a few others, but I never read The okay. Maltese Falcon. Uh, but this one stars Humphrey Bogart yeah. as Sam Spade, a private detective who gets roped into a bit of intrigue after the fact. Mm. Because there turns out there has already been a massive heist of a very rare piece of antiquity called the Maltese Falcon. It is from, a statue of a bird. From it, Malta. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's just made of stone, but allegedly you could like carve off the stone and it's supposed to be like solid gold under there and be priceless. Um, he has wandered into uh, a whole bunch of people who are behind the heist who are now trying to steal the Maltese Falcon mm. back and forth from who, each other. Uh, who, by the way, all come to him. Most of the film takes place in his office. He doesn't do a lot. <laughs> he doesn't have Sam, to. Sam Spade. He's like just... People come in and say, I want to hire you. Okay. Well, I want to hire you, and here's the Falcon. Okay. <laughs> I want to hire you, but I'm chasing that other person. Okay. I'm not doing anything here. This story is just happening. Right. Well, what happens is he's hired to find someone, but it turns out it was all a false pretense in order to find the person who had the Falcon, and now mm. he's just sort of stuck in it, and everyone thinks he's an important player when he's actually... Really shouldn't be. Yeah, in fact... <laughs> it's not his story. I, he has another story going on. Someone killed his partner, and he was in the uh, middle of investigating that, and then all this damn Maltese Falcon shit happens. I, I saw the Maltese Falcon in college, and I hated it at the time. Oh, why? Uh, I just... I, I 
didn't like Humphrey Bogart, Bogart at the time. I thought it was a little too masculine for my taste. Well, it is um, very masculine. I'll give um, you that. I, I love Peter Laurie in this movie. Yeah, uh, Peter Laurie, Sydney Greenstreet's really, really yeah, fun in this movie. A, just good, good, good rogues gallery of scumbag supporting actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Alicia but, Cook Jr. is in this movie. We just uh, talked about an episode he did of Star Trek. Yeah, he, our Patreon he's, podcast. He's always wonderful. He was also in The Killing. Yeah, not well, on my list. The Killing. It's full of really richly written characters in every single scene. You know, there's a screenwriting trick they teach you mm. where uh, when you're trying to write a scene and you want to make sure it actually feels necessary and dynamic and it's not just a bunch of stuff that happens um, you ask yourself what does each character want right now mm. and how are they trying to get it in that scene and it could be plot related it could be emotionally it could be all kinds of things and when you have five different very distinct characters all yelling at each other in a room mm. um, you realize just how distinct each of these characters are and how their motivations shift and how what they want from the scene evolves over time as Sam Spade gets the better of them and Oh, it's just a clever piece of hard-boiled pulp writing, and of course, and of course, it ends really unhappily with everything just sort of falling apart, and the only person who gets out of it, really, with even anything at all, at least their dignity, mm-hmm. is the person who didn't want much. Yeah, and that's a really, I think that's a really notable yeah. comment right there. Um, listen, it it it's I can see why you dislike it. It's kind of straightforward in some ways, and it's yeah. well, it's, it's burliness. It's, I, I haven't uh, I haven't rewatched it since college, so I just oh, have, you I, should. I just have bad memories of it. I'm not going to yeah. say it's a bad film because I I can't judge my taste now by what I liked when I was 18. Well, watch, I, I evolved uh, a lot. But. Watch, rewatch it sometime for mm. me and try to focus on how Humphrey Bogart it just wanders into someone else's movie and just yeah, trying I, to get out, figure a way out of it. It's just, mm. it's, it's a marvel. I, I really think that's great. why I didn't like it. It's uh, like, uh, if he... I think I wanted more detecting. It's like, ah. this is a private detective story. No, it's not a private detective story. It's just like a bunch of other stories. It's it's about people who are trying to get the better of one another, and mm. they don't realize that the best one of them is the one who isn't trying to steal their shit. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a really excellently mm. made motion picture. What's your uh, first pick? Um, let's see. I have a, a whole list here. You know, speaking of... Um, how the war was kind of the thing that that brought about noir, this kind of new uh, moral reconsideration of all of the systems that failed us, why not go to a post-war movie? Um, And I'm going to choose Carol Reed's The Third Man. Oh, that's also on my Uh, list. Yeah. That's um, perfect. The the Third Man stars Joseph Cotton as... uh, He's just a pulp writer. He's not even a fancy author. He writes westerns. Yeah, he he writes, like, western novels, and he's... Even he himself doesn't think a lot of his work, and he's gone to... uh, post-war Berlin, mm. uh, which has been divided up amongst various countries. Yeah, so everyone's it's, it's kind got of their like, own sector. Yeah, so it, it's it's uh, kind of like this period of reconstruction. And uh, he's Actually, a, sorry, it's Vienna. Or Vienna, you're right, excuse me. Sorry, it's not. It's like Berlin, Berlin in, that yeah. the, in that the city is bisected, but mm. it's actually every different country. You're right, it is, it is Vienna, yeah. and yeah, it, it's, it belongs to several different countries at once. Mm-hmm. Nobody uh, speaks the same language, everyone's yeah, trying to get in control of the black market, it's a really weird time. Uh, yeah, it's just this really, really unstable time, and he's looking for a friend of his who, uh, once he arrives there, learns has died. His friend is named Harry Lyme. He died was, earlier the day yeah. that his train arrived. It's like, well, I'm, I'm here to see Harry Lyme. No, Harry Lyme's dead. Well, crap, what do I do in this city that has nothing? Um, I don't know a, anybody. I have no uh, skills. He, he uh, decides to start asking around, well, what happened? Just because he's curious. It's not like a big mystery at that point. He just wants to know what happened. Yeah, the guy died um, in public. He was hit by a car. And uh, the... Um, 
in his own little subplot, which I really, really love, one of the locals says, oh, you're an author. Why don't you come to our book club and talk about the art of writing? Uh-huh. And they think he's like some highfalutin, like literary figure. And he's like, what, what, what are some of your, your big influences when you're reading? Oh, Zane Gray. No, no. He, surely you mean like, you mean like Melville or something, right? And, no, just, you know, I write Westerns. Yeah. I write crap. Yeah. It is, it is about people who uh, can't believe how simple yeah, yeah. it is. And of course, the more he starts asking questions and he goes to you know, various people who are in Harry Lyme's life, he realized that something's a little bit amiss, that Harry was involved with some sort of crime, mm-hmm. and that there was a mysterious uh, group of men who were there when Harry Lyme died, and a mysterious third man that nobody can identify. Yeah. Ooh, it's and, great. And it's great. And it's it, so great. Um... And, and, of course, we do find out what happened to Harry Lyme in the best possible way. Yeah. Uh, what I love about The Third Man is it's it's really dark. It's really hard-boiled in that kind of detective sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a wonderful chase at the end that's cited by film experts everywhere as one of the best shot sequences ever. It's through sewers, a sewer. It's through oh sewers. Everything's God, echoing, and there's long shadows. And, yeah, it's just exquisitely photographed. I remember when The Third Man first hit Criterion DVD. And it had been cleaned up for the first time, and mm. you could finally see, like, every tiny little detail. There's a scene uh, between Joseph Cotton and another character in an amusement park yeah. with a bunch of abandoned Ferris wheels. Oh, and it's all of cool. a sudden, you can see all of the Ferris wheels. It's just beautiful. Yeah, I remember when this guy that got uh, re released in mm. theaters in the late 90s, and I saw it like three times. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't get enough of it. Uh, but what's really notable about it is it has a weird sense of whimsy to it. It actually yeah. has a weird sense of humor, the third man. Yeah, there's something, it, it's cynical, but everyone's sort of accepted it at that point. Yeah. Everyone's uh, uh, got a sense of humor about it, except for Joseph Cotton. And everyone's just trying to get Joseph Cotton to just be like just just mm-hmm. let it go it's the it, forget it Jake it's Chinatown you know just like right. this is the way it is you're just gonna let it go and he's like no I am a he's a western author mm. he deals in moral simplicity uh-huh. and when he starts trying to investigate <coughs> crime and criminality in a post-war Vienna an incredibly mm. complicated world they don't know what to do with him, and he doesn't know what to do either. He's the most out of place protagonist you could possibly oh. have, and and Joseph Cotton plays it so well. He's a, really, the sort of like he's almost like a dippy dad who just can't figure stuff figure out his kids. Joseph Cotton, I think, is maybe the most underrated actor of that era, at least well, like, because he was in a lot of stuff, but people do not talk about him as a great actor. He, he was in a lot of stuff. He was often a supporting player to great, like he had Citizen Kane, famously a supporting yeah. player to Orson Welles. Orson Welles also appears in The Third Man in a role I'm not going to reveal. Um, you know what it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a famous being, film, you probably know. But if you haven't seen it, we do want to let you I, discover I'm, it I'm, be, I'm being coy a little bit. But uh, yeah, uh, Orson Welles is in this film. And um, yeah, I think he sort of lived in Orson Welles' shadow in a lot of ways, even yeah. though he is himself a really terrific actor. It's almost like he was the straight man. Like Orson yeah. Welles got to sort of be really, really flashy, and Joseph Cotton kept everything really grounded. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of what goes to the mood of the third man is music. Anton uh, Karras. Anta, Ant, let's stop and have a, a moment of silence for the awesomeness of Anton Karras. Uh, you, you think of film noir, you think of uh, smoky saxophone solos or you know trumpet jazz mm-hmm. solos. Um, Elevator to the Gallows famously had a score by Miles Davis. You know, it's all about. These I never good... saw that. That's awesome. Yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. Um, I'll check that out. But. Uh, 
this is not a jazzy kind of moody score. It's like upbeat folk zither music. Yeah, the entire score is done by a zither, and mm. it's all it's all forte. It's yeah. all really loud <laughs> and very yeah. yeah, it's really like kind of bouncy almost. And it pierces the scene. It mm. never disappears. It always calls attention to itself, as though it, as though it's almost. Like a storyteller at a campfire, like but it works because it is as playful as the movie is. Yeah, Third Man, absolute must see. Whether you're watching noir or just love movies in general, it's a hell of a film. Well, you said you said you had the Third Man. I do have the Third Man. So what's another? What's another? What's a non-classic? What's something a little more recent for me? Something a little more recent. uh, I'm actually going to go with a film that, if I'm being honest, I still might think is the Coen Brothers' best work. (laughs) They have done a lot of films in the film noir tradition. Miller's Crossing is in the film noir tradition. No Country for Old Men is in the film noir tradition. I would argue. um, uh, What's that one with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Seven? No, no, Brett Cohen Brothers, Brad oh, Pitt, Cohen John Brothers. Malkovich, uh, oh, Burn, uh, After, Burn reading. After Reading. I would argue yeah. that's in the film noir tradition, in a, although in a very oddball the, way. The, the, that's almost a parody of film noir. Well, I think, yeah. I, mean, I think you'd say the same for the Big Lebowski, well, where yeah. clearly Big, they're using for, the tradition. For sure, Big Lebowski is a parody of film noir. But in some respects, I actually think the Cohen Brothers might have made their very best film the first time with a film called Blood Simple. Oh, okay. I love Blood Simple. <laughs> Blood Simple is one of the most devious tricks I think any filmmaker Mm. has ever pulled off. Uh, Blood Simple is the story of three people, well, four, I guess. Mm. There's a a love triangle and a private detective who comes into the middle of it. Guy who owns a bar has a young wife. uh, He's played by Dan Hedaya. She's played by Frances McDormand. Mm. Um, And she is having an affair with... I actually forget the actor's name. One second... She's oh, having um, a, oh golly, who is it? Uh, she's having an affair with is it Sam Hart Williams? <laughs> John Getz, <laughs> right? John Getz. John Getz. She's having an affair with John Getz, and Dan Hedaya hires the awesome M. Emmett Walsh as a private detective to prove that they did it. And when he proves that they did it, he then hires M. Emmett Walsh to kill them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, we're okay. with you so far. Everyone's on the same page right now. Well, first of all, M. Emmett Walsh. As assassin, <laughs> one of the best ideas in cinema history. So great. Um, he, mm-hmm. at this point, you're going to have to pay attention because the cards in this three-card Monty game are going to go around real fast. <laughs> From that point on, no character in the movie ever knows everything that's happening in the plot. They're that's true. all and, under and that's, misapprehension. That's a, a kind of a common trope in uh, in Coen Brothers films, where yeah. people are just not really sure what's going on. Yeah, we, the audience, know everything that's going on, but every single character is under a misapprehension. If someone dies, every character thinks someone else did it, and they never find out. Mm. So the audience is ma- seeing this actually pretty clear sequence of events, where M. Emmett Walsh fakes some photography to make it look like he killed them, and then he steals money from Dan Hedaya, and then he tries to kill Dan Hedaya. Then John Getz finds Dan Hedaya's body and assumes Francis McDormand killed him, and now he's trying to get rid of the body to protect her. And then she <laughs> finds out that he's been getting rid of a body, and she assumes he killed Dan Hedaya. Mm. 
Oh, it is deft. It is beautifully photographed. It is sharply edited. Every single part of it, every single little piece of criminality is kind of robbed of sort of fantasticalness until the end. Mm. Like, just trying to dispose of a body is so hellish <laughs> in Blood Simple. Like, you think it's going to be like you yeah. just put him in the trunk, drag him it's somewhere, like a, throw him off like, a bridge, something. Mm. Not that easy. Really difficult and painful and terrible for everyone mm. involved, including the corpse. Like, there's the, the, a scene in Psycho where Norman is, like, pushing a car into a swamp oh, and it so doesn't good. sink and he's just sort of sitting there, like, looking at the car that's, like, half-submerged and he doesn't know what to do for like, a minute. how do I... What, what do I do if it doesn't sink? Yeah. Nothing. And then it does. And, and then he's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then you and the audience are going, oh, thank God. And then you're like, wait a minute, no. He's, he's, he's hiding his crime in that trunk. And that's the beautiful thing about something like a film noir, where people are making decisions that you yourself morally would never make. Or you'd like to think you'd never make anyway. Or you'd never at least be in the, uh, the situation where you'd have yeah, to Yeah, you'd make. never put yourself in that mm-hmm. position. But once they're there, it's so desperate that you can't help but sympathize and hope mm-hmm. that the best people involved whoever they may be Mm. make it out okay uh i don't want to ruin blood simple for you just keep that in mind as you're watching it that you know what's going on and no one else does and when you do the climactic sequence is not just harrowingly filmed Mm. but it's fascinating and the look on francis mcdormand's face like after like the last line of dialogue in the movie Mm. is everything it's (laughs) such a brilliant 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 neo-noir yeah. All right. What's your next pick? Uh, well, if you chose the early '80s, I'll stick with the early '80s as well. I'm going to go with uh, Lawrence Kasdan's 1981 film Body Heat. Ah, that also made my list. Uh, <laughs> However, it made my list in a tie, so I'll do my next oh, one. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Body Heat. Uh, one of the sexiest damn movies you'll ever see. Uh, William Hurt is a lawyer. In, it's in Florida, I believe. Uh, I want to uh, say yeah. It's uh, and he. Uh, he, he's in Florida, and he runs aground on uh, Kathleen Turner. That's an interesting way to put that. <laughs> he she, runs aground on Kathleen Turner? Because she she is, a, is Florida. A, 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 a massive sexuality unto herself. Oh. And, yeah, there's a... In fact, the, the introduction of the Kathleen Turner character is... Um, it's really the entire movie's hot. Everybody's just glistening with sweat, and their mm-hmm. clothes are sticking to them, and they're always drinking cold drink. Like, you feel the actual heat in the room. So you're already kind of in a in a half naked mood. While yeah, you're you're, this you want to take your shirt off while you're watching the yeah. film, not because it's sexy, although it often is, but just because it looks like you, it's really hot in here and you need to take off your yeah. shirt, and then and, uh, you're ready for sex. <laughs> but he's he's wandering down a park, and there's like a public concert, and. Uh, we see a woman stand near the front of the crowd, and she's in a br- bright white dress. She's mm-hmm. the only thing we can see. We know what that that scene is. We know who that person is. We know that's Kathleen Turner. Sex is on. <laughs> and the sex percolates and explodes spectacularly. He has between to break William a Hurt. goddamn window. Yeah, she, so... And yeah, they start talking. It's like, so we're, we're going to sex. Yeah, she's like, well, I'm married to Richard Crenna. It's like, oh, well, damn it. But just walk me home. Oh, I see. So yeah. we're going to have sex. No, just walk me home. And I'm going to yeah. hide behind this glass patio door. We're both really turned on. Yeah. I'm going to break that fucking door. And, <laughs> and he does. He grabs, he grabs a chair. A, no, it's, it's a flower pot. Oh, it's a he flower pot. He grabs a flower pot. He tucks it through the oh, door. Oh, God. Because so he just he, can't handle the sexual tension and, anymore. And the, the glass breaks and she has an orgasm when the glass... Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's the thing with a lot of film noir. A lot of film noir is about how 
a very simple primal vice gets us into trouble, whether yeah, it's greed, yeah. gluttony, or frequently lust. But the problem with it, a lot it, of they're about the seven deadly sins. But a yeah. lot of them are, yeah, and. But because those are the those are the vices, those mm-hmm. are the obsessions that we have that can get people into trouble. And something like body heat, the you understand director Lawrence Kasdan. His uh, first film as a director, too. Yeah. Wow, what a debut. And he previously only wrote like well-known adventure films like Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. and, and uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And so, now, now he's doing this like awesome pseudo-remake of Double Indemnity. Yeah. Uh, uh, where uh, it, the plot ends up being about how can we stay together? Well, we clearly have to kill Richard Crenna. Yeah, but like he, uh, he knew that his biggest job mm. in order to justify all the shit William Hurt is going to do in order to ca- continue having sex with Kathleen Turner, the audience has to believe mm. that, that she's commit, that cr- that he would commit crimes for that. Yeah, yeah. like he, it's got to be that sexy, and he nails it and Kathleen Turner is perfect Mm -hmm. and William Hurt not generally considered the studliest of actors Uh he plays it off he has an Mm -hmm. unusual form of macho where like it's kind of intelligent but he is completely completely like uh, uh, in the thrall of his own libido like mm -hmm. he has no control over his bad urges uh, Mickey Rourke is also in this film he plays like a a, like a munitions expert he once knew Uh, Uh, in the script I believe he's called a rock and roll arsonist which is one of the best character (laughs) intros you'll ever find in a screenplay I'd watch a movie called rock and roll arsonist but uh, yeah young Mickey Rourke is in this there's a scene where uh, like they're hanging out in a garage together William Hurt and Mickey Rourke and they're both wearing like white tank tops and they're lounging about on this bunk bed uh i have heard more than one woman call that one of the sexiest scenes in film history just watching these two men hang i'm not not even like you know like studly muscular dudes it's, it's yeah, mickey, young rourke mickey rourke is, is pretty well hot. young mickey rourke is pretty hot yeah, yeah young, young mickey rourke and 1981 william hurt in tank sweaty tank tops hanging around in a garage there's a great little detail they're not even of, doing anything sexy with each other but they should there's a great little detail mm. i love in body heat where it's just like how much of a fuck-up is William Hurt? <laughs> like, seriously, like, he can't do anything 100% right. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly throughout the film, we see him jogging, and then as soon as he's done jogging, he lights a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's a little commentary about how I'm going to do all these things just to well, take care of myself, and now I'm going to chain smoke. <laughs> uh, cigarettes, it should be noted, were a good way for the Hayes Code to include elements of sexuality in their films in the mm-hmm. 1940s. There's an element of oral obsession. Yeah, there's an oral obsession. Yeah, it was sexy because you're putting something in your lips. It's mm-hmm. kind of like kissing. The people can lean in close to light one another's cigarettes. Mm-hmm. They became a good shorthand for sexuality. And in fact, a smoky um, scene has mm. a certain decadence to it that a yeah. filmmaker like Tony Scott, for example, would put in almost all of his movies. Yeah, yeah. Just and, to evoke um, that mood. The reason so many people started smoking in the 50s was because of that. That's a oh, big this, part. It's people a big were already part, smoking. Yeah. People were already smoking. Let's be fair. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, if you look at, like, sort of the history of the cigarette, it was a soldier's activity. Yeah. Soldiers smoked. Uh, mm-hmm. cigarettes it's the reason why there's like ideas like this is a turkish blend it's like something you had overseas yeah when you were in the service yeah, yeah, um there there the whole idea of smoking was something soldiers kind of brought back to america and because of the Hayes code because of censorship about sex people started smoking more and because of also and because, and because people also started smoking started more cigarettes yeah. yeah it was selling a lot of cigarettes and we had this whole generation of incredibly unhealthy people who were smoking too much 
as in at all. But yeah. anyway, um, my I was going to pick the body heat, but as you've already uh, intimated, I don't think body heat exists without double indemnity, and mm-hmm. so I wanted to put them on the same line. Okay, so I'm yeah, going to put I I actually put double indemnity at my number one. Uh, <laughs> let's I, wait on that. I separated. Let's so, let's, okay. let's wait on that. We'll right. we'll we'll keep that. Right, just, uh, just to skip ahead a little bit, I don't think yeah. it's much of a spoiler to say Double Indemnity is the best noir ever made. No, no, no. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll let that slide. I think that's sort of the er example. That's that's totally totally yeah. fine. Okay, uh, but if, if you had another uh, like another classic you wanted to get to, well, there's a bunch. Of, well, obviously, I got a bunch left. Uh, I want to talk about a film that I don't think it's talked about nearly enough, but the people who have seen it mm-hmm. love it. It is a film called. Gun Crazy. Oh, I love Gun Crazy. Gun Crazy Gun is Crazy the is shit. Awesome. Gun Crazy is a 1950 film, also mm. uh, sometimes released as Deadly is the Female, <laughs> uh, but it's most commonly mm. released nowadays as Gun Crazy. Uh, and uh, it was written by Dalton Trumbo back when he was blacklisted, <laughs> so it's a pr- pretty damn good script. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is a story about a. Man and a woman, they meet at a carnival sideshow. They are gun experts. And they decide, once the carnival falls apart, to go on a crime spree and start robbing banks. And uh, they're... But they're not interested in killing. No. They're gun experts, but they're not into, like, blood sports. They're they gun fetishists yeah. more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and, he, and I he think, like, his first crime was trying to steal a gun or I, I think Gun Crazy has a lot in common with Breathless, which came after, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah way after. Because uh, Breathless was 1960. And, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of a comment on what had happened with all of this noir stuff in, uh, in France. But, uh, yeah, the idea that we're going to look very solidly at the tropes of the crime movie, that is to say, the guns, and make that into kind of the the tragic flaw of the characters. Yeah. And, and indeed... Their, their interest in guns, their interest by in, extension, their interest in gun movies. Yeah, there's only so much you can do in this movie if you're an expert with guns. We tried to do gun show stuff, mm. didn't do it. We don't have enough money to open a gun shop <laughs> even if we wanted to. And there's a discussion where they actually have this. I like they, they talk about this, about mm. how, like... You know, ah, you're too lazy to to get a real job. It's like, robbing banks is hard. (laughs) It's really hard. It's a lot of work. And they really put a lot of effort into it. One of the best shots, I think, of this era (laughs) of cinema Mm. is in Gun Crazy. And uh, it's something that really just wasn't done at the time. Uh, They're going to rob a bank. There's... Our, our two anti-heroes are in the front seat of the car, and they're talking about how they're going to rob the bank. And, and the camera's in the back seat. camera's in the yeah. back seat, just watching him from the back seat. It's not an uncommon shot. We've all seen it. Mm. But here's the deal. They didn't block off the street. <laughs> they were just going to get this shot. It was a low-budget production, very run-and-gun, and they were just going to put the camera in the back seat. They're going to park in front of a bank. They're going to run into the bank, and then they're going to mm. run out. They couldn't find a parking spot. <laughs> So they had to do, they had to just keep rolling and they're just looking for and it becomes this almost it's almost absurdist it's the kind of thing the Coen brothers would do where it's like mm. it's real simple we just got to run into the bank well what if we can't find anywhere to put the car well shit <laughs> and it's this one little bit of detail and it was an accident it just mm. happened to happen in the production but it's that it, it ended up actually being perfect because it typified how gun crazy was looking at criminality from a less flashy extent. Like it wasn't 
super alluring. It was more about working class criminality mm. in a way that, yeah, we just you just weren't getting from the Maltese Falcon where everything was really arch. And I love the Maltese Falcon. I put it on this list. But a part of me loves Gun Crazy a little bit more okay. just because it feels more real to me and it feels a little more pointed hmm. because, as you say, it is about gun fetishism. So... Um, it's really excellent. Uh, it's not super hard to find, and although it's not talked about a lot in non-film circles, it should be. Yeah, Gun, highly gun, recommend checking gun it Crazy out. is is excellent. Yeah. I, I I I do love it. I love its kind of guerrilla style. Yeah. It, um, if you want something that feels guerrilla style to the point of sleaze. <laughs> Might I recommend The Honeymoon Killers? I've never seen The Honeymoon Killers. You haven't seen The Honeymoon Killers? No, it never came out. Tell me about this. Uh, imagine a film noir made by John Waters. Uh, it, it has that kind of deliberately overblown emotional outrageousness. It's about a nurse who is uh, unlucky in love and has gone to the internet at the time, kind of the, the singles pages in the backs of magazines, to find a boyfriend. And finds one, uh, this guy named Ray uh, Ray Fernandez, played by Tony Lobianco. Okay. And he's a, a, just an oily guy. <laughs> like, she, she's like kind of an, an unkempt, obese nurse, and he's just this kind of sleazy dude. And they begin having a romance, but you're not really sure how genuine the romance is and how much it's predicated on complete and utter desperation. Mm-hmm. And it's eventually revealed that his racket is he actually answers these ads, seduces women, and takes their money. Okay. And, of course, with her, it's different. And she kind of gets in on this racket, but then now she has to watch as he, time and time again, is seducing women that she is constantly afraid that uh, that he's going to leave her for. Mm. Um there's a lot of screaming in the honeymoon killers. There's a lot of outrage. Um, it, and it's based on uh, a true story as well, which about uh, the lonely hearts killers, which they've made several movies about. Yeah. Um, Shirley Stoller plays the lead character in this and good God, her, okay. her energy and her presence on screen is that of Edith Massey. Wow. Just, you, I, I can't necessarily call her the most talented actress, but she is, diving into this thing there's something with to be... so much hate and rage that it almost seems genuine. No, there's something to be said for that performance that may yeah. not be as sculpted, but just feels just right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, Which is why compared to Edith Massey, Edith, Edith Massey was not a talented actress. She didn't have, like, a lot of range, but, yeah, she was always so pleased to be playing whatever role she was that like even when she's the egg lady in Pink Flamingos, it's like, oh, I, I love you, Edith Massey. And, and I love Shirley Stoller in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's about just cons and mistrust. Nothing ever feels comfortable in The Honeymoon Killers. Mm. It's a really, really uncomfortable movie. And not in that sort of sweaty body heat sort of way. Just in, in that... Ugly kind of way. Yeah, yeah. where, where you're, you're just waiting for more ugliness within the characters' souls to reveal themselves. Awesome. Well, uh, for my next pick, mm. I want to pick... Actually, a film I only just recently discovered... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not unwell known, but to me it was relatively new. Somehow I'd missed it, and uh, it's a mm-hmm. film that uh, my wife and partner Michelle uh, mm-hmm. was well aware of and thought I needed to see. It is Samuel Fuller's The Naked Kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen The Naked Kiss. Oh, it is mm-hmm. excellent. <laughs> oh, Samuel Fuller, if you're unfamiliar with the director, uh, made confrontational cinema. <laughs> it is alive. It is often. 
violent, and if not physically violent, then psychologically violent. Just really pushed mm. as far as he could possibly push to get you to view things in a different way. He did a great film called Shock Corridor. Yeah, about a, a, which, it blows the lid off of... Uh, uh, insane asylums. Yeah, mental institution. There's a, someone gets killed in a mental institution, and a, uh, a reporter who is eager to win a prize decides to go undercover in the mental institution. But over time, he starts losing his own mind. It mm-hmm. is, it's it's like it's like what I feel like Shutter Island was kind of getting at uh-huh. in a lot of way. Obviously, the plot's different, but just in terms mm-hmm. of like how deep we're willing to go into the depth of the of the human consciousness. But man, it's a tour de force acting. It's great, but it's—I don't really consider it much of a noir. Mm. It's kind of too specific for that. Naked Kiss is a great noir. Uh, it stars Constance Towers, which, by the way, one of the great acting <laughs> names. Constance Towers. Constance Towers plays a sex worker who, in the first scene, is in the process of fleeing from her pimp. Uh, she flees to a small town where she plans to get her shit together. She just wants to build a normal life, have a normal life, find a nice job, maybe get married, Mm. and leave her past behind her. Yeah. The cops immediately recognize her for the type of work she has done. They just Mm. know her type. (laughs) So already she's working her way upward, but she refuses Uh to leave. She starts uh, taking on more and more, um, more and more parts, uh, uh, getting more and more involved in the community, and... Eventually meets a nice, handsome, rich man. And it seems like everything is going to go really, really well. Until something goes so spectacularly horribly, (laughs) so nightmarishly wrong, Mm. that you start to realize that she really didn't move. Hmm. She went to another town, which said everything was nice, but the people there are perhaps just as awful, if not more so. That they are just as, even more judgmental in a lot of ways, which is its own kind of torture. And that whatever she has done in her past, she is completely incapable of living down to certain people. Mm -hmm. And they will railroad her, they will even potentially murder her, if it means not ripping the band-aid off of their own society. I don't want to tell you everything that happens in it, because Mm. it's not a plot-heavy movie. There's only like (laughs) four or five big plot points. A lot of it's just really great character work. Constance Towers is excellent in this. Mm. Um, But it has that Samuel Fuller kick. (laughs) You know? Like, like every bite of this movie has like a dash of Tabasco on it. Like, it's just, it, it will... Mm. hit you hard and it is ugly and powerful and uh, you know cheap in that absolute best way where it feels really genuine uh and yeah i i'm mm. i just i finally watched it for the first time about a year ago i'm still reeling it's a really fantastic film and i wish i'd seen it earlier amazing so, yeah definitely yeah. see the naked kiss it's fucked up okay. in a really great way um all of our films so far have been american yeah, that's I, true, actually. I don't like that. So Carol Reed is a British director, though. Okay, he did the third man. Fair. But still. But we would be remiss if we did not include, include at least one French noir film. Um, that's fair. Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville is a favorite <laughs> of mine. 
There was a period in my 20s when I became obsessed with Jean-Pierre Melville and watched a bunch of his movies in a row. I think that's pretty common for film students. Yeah. Like, you you, know, start, you discover like, Melville and you're like, ooh, everything's sexy now. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, I, I get American noir, but now it's good. It's like, oh. No, it, like, it, even if you like noir, it's like, oh, wait a minute, but this is how you're supposed to do it. It's like yeah. they're, they're kind of schooling them. Everything's the slick and fancy. Slick and fancy. So I'm going to choose Bob Flambeur. Uh, there you as, go. As a... Uh, it, it arguably his best. I don't know. Uh, if I you would want make that say. argument. I know a lot right. of people love like the Red Circle or uh, the La mm. Samurai was a huge influence on a lot of uh, crime movies that followed. Yeah, uh, but no, I think you're right. I think Bob Flambeur is the winner. Yeah, Bob Flambeur came out in 1956, and um, it's about gamblers, uh, particularly Bob Flambeur. Is Bob the gambler, and he. Mm. Uh, he I remember hearing reached... that title for so long with only like a cursory understanding of French, and I thought he mm. was an arsonist. Oh, like Flambeur. Flambeur. Okay, yeah. yeah no, but no, no he's, Flambeur is, is gambler. Gambler. Uh, Bob is a gambler. Uh, Bob is an, an, old, an older man. And he has reached a level of uh, distinct, distinguishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, people uh, respect him. Yeah, people respect him. He is well known. But he's not always well off. And he's kind of at peace with that fact, but yeah. it doesn't make him happy. No, he's 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 uh, a he's a helpless gambler. He gambles everything away. But people like him, and I think that's an important part of this. He's he's not a scumbag, <laughs> but he is constantly living in poverty because of his gambling habit. So yeah. he's actually not uh if you think gambling is sort of a, a crime or a bad thing, then he's also kind of stained a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think he sees himself as a little bit stained. Um and uh, it's about how, in order to make ends meet, he decides to get together with some buddies and engage in a heist. And they're going to rob a casino. And they go through all of the steps to rob a casino, but more than that, it's about kind of how these characters are interacting as they plan. Some of them are really, really into it. Some of them aren't. Bob cl- kind of isn't into it, but he understands how it can be done. And he's trying to pull it off with a lot of class. But it's also about how his generation is now being outstripped by a, a feistier, more hot-headed generation of criminals that are just trying to smash and grab. Uh, and all of this culminates in the heist, and the heist does not go in the way you expected. <laughs> no, the, it really does funny, not. In the funniest possible way. Like, it's, the movie suddenly, like, you realize that what you thought it was building to, yeah. it was building to something completely, completely different. Completely different. It's perfect. Yeah. But it is pulling the rug out from under you. Mm. And boy, is it great. <laughs> it's <laughs> so damn good. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched Bob LaFlamber, I actually like... I watched like, watch on video. I mm. watched about half of it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I watched the second half the next day. I'm like, oh, I wish I just kept watching it. <laughs> I did not understand. I thought I got the yeah, gist of it and I can get back to it, it tomorrow. It, the, like, no, no, the, no, 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 no. The, the climax, it, like, it does really kind of pull a left turn on you. Oh, and, it's uh, such a good left turn. But like, you, you can hear the delight in our voices. It's not about like a reveal of the darkness of the human soul. No. It's just about, wait a minute. Sometimes fate is just k- kind of weird and fun. <laughs> Yeah, and and, uh, and yeah, I, I wouldn't dream of uh, revealing what it is, but yeah, that yeah. Bob Flambeur, uh it moves on at a great clip. It has great character work. Yeah. Uh, Jean Pierre Melville had a, a, a lightness and a deftness to his directing style that I think um, a lot of directors kind of lack. He's able to just in terms of his craft and his editing mm. have things skip along. Uh, even when he's dealing with really uh, heavy, heavy subject matter, he made a movie about you know the, the French un- French Resistance, for goodness sake, called Army of Shadows. Um, 
Best film of 2005 that was made in 1966. Because uh, <laughs> it finally it was, got released. It was released It was released in America in 2005 for the very first time. And, so a, lot of, making, and a lot of cheeky a lot film of, uh, critics put it on their best of the year well, list. I mean, come on. I think we both put The Other Side of the Wind on our best of list. Because that I, had never been released. And the reason I did that is because I saw people do it with Army of Shadows. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I so, knew it was fair game. Mm, Arm, Army of Shadows. Army of Shadows was technically available, though. Like, The Other Side of the Wind it just had never come That's out. That's true. I, the Other Side of the Wind was just a myth. Yeah. That had mostly been made in 1970. I had come to terms with the fact that I would probably never get to see it. Mm. And we saw it, and it was great. It's so good! People and, don't talk about it enough. I'm so then, bummed I didn't get an Oscar nomination. Nobody talked about a it? token they, Oscar nomination yeah, for, for Orson s- Welles. Screenplay, at least. Something, yeah. you know? Like, I would Best director? It's amazingly directed. Mm. Anyway. Um, cool. Well, my mm. next pick is a film that I, you know, I almost didn't put it on the list. Like I got, a, I got some gimmies on here, and like my, my next one after that is a gimme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I couldn't not put L.A. Confidential on the list. Mm-hmm. It's just too damn good, and it came out like the I, perfect uh, time yeah, for my I for just, me too. So I have this really deep emotional connection to it. I, I, I do too. It might be one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's up just there. Period. Yeah, and I left it off this list for no other reason that I think it deserves to be on a different list, mm. like like just the great uh, great films of all time. It has Kevin Spacey. That's something we just have to contend with now. He, yeah, uh, that's that's a thing. And but you know what? We're just mm. we we have to deal with it. We have to confront yeah, it. He's a, he's a supporting character in the film. Well, it, it, he's one of essentially three co leads. Yeah, LA Confidential. LA Confidential is an incredibly complicated mm. story, and it all the credit in the god damn world goes to Curtis Hansen for keeping this thing together. Yeah. He co-wrote the screenplay <laughs> with Brian Helglund. It's a really masterful adaptation. I have read the book for this. You read the book and then you see the movie and you're just like, holy crap, they did mm. some gymnastics to make that work as a movie. <laughs> they, it works. It's mm. incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a story of three very different detectives. Mm. One young up-and-comer who will stop at nothing in order to succeed and enter the world of politics, basically. He mm. just wants to rise through the ranks as quickly as possible, played by a young guy, Pierce. One, a brutish... A brutish... Bru- brutish, that is. A, a brute. Yeah. Played by Russell Crowe, who isn't particularly intelligent. He has a moral compass, but he's also... Easily manipulated by by more charismatic men into doing whatever they want him to do. He's like dumb Batman. <laughs> um, if Batman, if Batman was was like one of a, was a goon. Yeah, and he didn't know it. Like he, I don't know that I'm a goon, a penguin's goon. Like that's the story. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, and then there is Kevin Spacey's character, who is a celebrity cop. Mm. And he takes a lot of bribes from various tabloids to act on their on their various tips and arrest celebrities in front of a camera. Yeah. Um, he also works on a TV show called Badge of Honor, which is mm. very clearly based off of Dragnet. Yeah. And all of they, the, they even say just the facts. Just the facts, yeah, man. Just the yeah. facts man. Like it, LA Confidential takes place in real LA, and it's as real as they can make it. But whenever something isn't real, mm. there's a very close analog yeah. to something that actually existed, like Badge of Honor. Mm. Um, and they're all getting involved in a series of crimes that they don't realize. I'm going to just do a kiss, kiss, bang, bang here. They don't realize it's all the same case <laughs> because that's how interconnected. Mm-hmm not just crime was, but the various levels of society were. And so they're all working on different levels. They're looking at sex workers. They're looking at the rich and famous. They're looking at actors. They're looking at people in publishing. They're looking at corrupt cops. 
they're all directly connected in ways that they wouldn't otherwise have known. Yeah, and everything, of course, stems from, and as they explain in an opening, uh, Mickey Cohen, the real Mickey Cohen, real yep. real gangster, mm-hmm. who was busted for tax evasion, just like Al Capone. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's Hollywood, it's a remake. Yeah, that, that, that's their comment. <laughs> that's the that's joke, all, yeah. <laughs> There's the, no originality the, in Hollywood. The, the we got him the same is, way yeah. we got Capone. The, the film is narrated by uh, Sid Hudgens, this sort of like sleazy... Uh, tabloid journalist played by Danny DeVito mm-hmm. he's perfect uh, actually I was going to say that's the one element I don't like you don't is, like is, Danny DeVito is the casting of Danny I like Danny DeVito generally but yeah. I think I think you need a, 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 a slimier type of actor to play I that think, role I think he's really there slimy was, in there this. was a, there was an LA Confidential TV series that nobody talks about it was a where, failed pilot uh, it was a failed pilot uh, with Kiefer Sutherland Kiefer Sutherland and Pruitt Taylor Vince played Sid Hudgens in that version and I think he's actually better casting for that role I think it's a lateral move mm-hmm. I think Danny mm-hmm. DeVito brings something a little bit more like you can see why people don't just deal with him but kind of like him okay. when Danny DeVito does it whereas mm-hmm. Pruitt Taylor Vince is the like sleazy guy who you only deal with because he will print your dirtiest secrets if you don't yeah it's just a slightly different take on the character okay. I like Danny DeVito's version great but okay anyway but uh I forgot what I was getting at here, but uh, you were talking about uh, they're all interconnected. Oh, they're just yeah. they're they're all interconnected, and uh, Danny DeVito kind of stages all of this crime as if it's showbiz gossip, and so yeah, he's the one who points out that it's like this is Hollywood, things aren't original here in Hollywood, so we're going to bust Mickey Cohen for the same way they busted Al Capone, and uh, now there's sort of a, a void in the criminal underworld, and uh, of course everything starts to stem from this void in the criminal underworld, and yeah, um, Ed Exley's story starts with the shooting uh-huh. at the Night Owl Cafe. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Bud, 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 Bud White begins uh, looking at uh, uh, his partner was one of the victims and right. so he starts looking at it from that perspective mm-hmm. and then Jack Vincennes uh, is looking Wait, what is Jack doing again? well Jack uh, because he got he gets involved in like after the killing they arrest a, because they're all racist white cops they arrest uh, a bunch of Latino guys and then mm-hmm. there's like this big uh, savage beating at the prison that night, where they beat up all of the prisoners. No, you're you're, you're conflating a little bit because he mm-hmm. that beating is right at the beginning. Oh yeah, you're, you're right, right at the beginning. But whatever, like there's a bunch of racism, and mm-hmm. he gets uh, kind of slipped in there because mm-hmm. he's trying to track down the killers at the night owl, and there's a whole bunch of immediate racial profiling, and Jack gets mm-hmm. fit in that way, and he ends up doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so and he he ends up getting because he's taken off the show, he gets assigned to Vice. Mm-hmm. And which is he, about drugs. Which and about drugs, and, and, and that case that he work on, works, is working on in Vice, that he's working with uh, Sid Hudgens, because Sid Hudgens... Like, no, wait, was, he was off of Vice, because Vice got him all the drug stuff. You're, LA Confidential is complicated. Uh, you're right, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm LA Confidential is up. complicated, that, but that's fine. It's fun, he's, it's but easy to follow when you're watching it, and that's uh, the important thing. Uh, if you read the book, it's almost impossible to follow, mm. but in a great way, because it's so uh, damn dense, and there's these weird subplots about how... Disney might have an illegitimate serial killer's son or something. It's so fucking weird. Um, but anyway, mm. the movie's complicated. We got a detail wrong. But uh, seriously, if you haven't seen LA Confidential, mm. it's... I feel like Curtis Hansen made the ultimate neo-noir that captures what we have in our head of what a noir should be. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's exactly the way it's, it should be if we made it, it now. It's like a, the Star Wars of noir. Actually, that's yeah. a really great way of putting it. It's, it's just, it's very to, slick. It puts all the things together in a slightly different way. Mm. Um, it's really amazing. It's, film. it's twisty. It's, yeah, it's, it, it is hard to follow. I'm getting a lot of detail. Yeah. I've seen the movie a dozen times. You can't like go to the bathroom wrong. and come back and, and yeah. not, you pause it. Mm. Pause it if you go to yeah. the bathroom. Let's move on. Uh, speaking of uh, just sort of a, a great 
great access to neo noirs, like a, a, the way a, a new generation of filmmakers tackled the the genre as it was now codified. I'm going to go with Polanski's Chinatown. Okay, uh, another controversial another, another, filmmaker, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Polanski. We all know about Polanski. Um, uh, he did make one of the great noir films, uh, which was sort of a riff on noir. And he he took a lot of what we saw in noir and took the things that had previously been coded, like the cigarettes, and uh, you know, coded like all the sexuality. And he just sort of put it right there on the surface. He made it a lot blunter. Uh, the main character, Jake Giddis, played by Jack Nicholson... He's not a hard-boiled figure. He's actually kind of... Uh, he's a lot more like a Humphrey Bogart in that he's just sort of bored by everything at this point. Mm. Uh, his job at this point has been reduced to suspicious spouses calling him to, to spy on their spouses. Which is a big cheating. part of it's the a, gig. But yeah. It is a big part of being a private investigator, but he's like... At the beginning, someone says, I need you to investigate my husband. Look, do you love your husband? Then don't worry about it. He'll come back. It's if, Getting pictures is not going to do anything for you. I've seen this happen a lot. And he gets involved in, weirdly enough, local water politics in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's a it's weird plot. It's the most boring plot you can imagine because he has to go, go, go to, like, zoning meetings and, and like... <laughs> it's weird because I actually do like that about Chinatown because... Mm-hmm. A, it's it's a Los Angeles uh, movie, and I have an affection for those. Mm-hmm. But um, L.A. doesn't have its own water. Yeah, it's all piped in from Colorado. Mostly, it's like it's piped yeah. in from ridiculously far away. Mm-hmm. So controlling the water in Los Angeles is kind of the ultimate enterprise. It is a perfectly brilliant scheme mm-hmm. if you can control the water in L.A. It's also so boring that you can't imagine most people are going to try to really dig up dirt on it yeah, because yeah. it seems like business as usual. And I do appreciate that at its heart, Chinatown is about the evils of local politics. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and when you look at actual politics, I think that's what a lot of uh, criminals who use politics to get away with their crimes are counting on. Yeah. That there's so much red tape and this is such a boring enterprise that you're not going to bother digging through and finding where they're hiding all of their, cri- their criminality. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, he finds a water magnet and all of the evil crimes he has been up to. Uh, John Huston plays that role. Yeah. Uh, John Huston, who directed uh, The Maltese Falcon yeah. and uh, Asphalt Jungle as well, didn't he? Did you ask for Jungle? I thought he did. I'm going to look it up. I think he did. No, John Hughes. He also played uh, my favorite Gandalf. Uh, (laughs) I want a secret to my favorite year that's my favorite Gandalf. My favorite Gandalf. Where Gandalf is going to do some public appearance in Hobbiton, but like he keeps getting stoned and running around and casting magic and Frodo's got to keep him in line. No, 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 no. Come back, come back, come back. That's a reference to a really wonderful film called My Favorite Year starring Peter O'Toole. Uh... It is an absolute delight. People do not talk about it enough. It's not a noir, but it is wonderful. It's just a, it's just a wonderful comedy. See my favorite yeah. year. It really deserves a bigger audience. Yeah. But yeah, Faye Dunaway plays the love interest, and she's really... I, I say the love interest, but she's actually like kind of the center of all of the drama. Sean mm. uh, Houston did do Asphalt Jungle. He did do Asphalt Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So John Houston pioneered the genre that it, he's now sort of the bad guy in. In many respects. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful scene where he and and Jake Giddis are, are having breakfast and he's just sort of they're have they're kind of interplaying off each other. Meanwhile, John Houston is like shoveling waffles into his mouth. Though, like <laughs> it's kind of amazing how much food he actually consumes in that scene. Uh, everything is emotionally fraught in Chinatown. Nothing is nobody is honest. 
nothing's on the up and up, and it is a relentlessly bleak movie. Uh, and what happens at the end is horrendous. Yeah, I, and, and the only thing they can say, and it's a famous line, is forget it, Jake. It's it's Chinatown, which is to say there's no morals. Nothing, yeah. can, nothing can ever, no one can ever be nailed down. This nothing good ever to, happens. Yeah. That's all that life is. I... It's difficult to recommend because of the director. Well, yeah. And, and you know, paying for this movie is supporting somebody you probably don't want to support. Mm-hmm. That's true. But acknowledge, true. but failing to acknowledge it is also kind of would leave a blind spot in the genre. I, I, I agree with that, and I know it's complicated. And again, mm-hmm. if you don't want to see it, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. I also, I'm just going to just be flat out with this, like even years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first saw Chinatown, I, I, Chinatown is to me what the Maltese Falcon is to you. Right. I saw it in college, okay. and it left me completely cold. All right. I appreciated and respected some of the things it was doing. I appreciate the construction of it. I appreciate the cleverness of the plot. I appreciate the depths of horror that the mm. finale gets to. But at the same time, nothing dragged me into it. Hmm. I always felt kind of deadened. Okay. By its cynicism. Like, its cynicism wasn't alive. Its cynicism was just kind of humdrum yeah, to me. It, mm. And so I never really connected to it. I've been meaning to revisit it for a long time. I'm sure I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah, it, it, but, it, it is yeah, from the it's early, not my favorite at it all. Is from, it's a Jack Nicholson film from the early 70s. Like, and Jack Nicholson, late 60s, early 70s, throughout actually the whole 70s, are all yeah. just these parties of cynicism well mostly uh, yeah. and he played that part really well that's why he's you know you watch the shining all of that is still kind of lingering he's over a brilliant him. actor i'm mm. not gonna take that away from him it's just it's not my it's not my jam oh, okay um i'm going to for i've only got a couple left here all right um all right i'm gonna it's another gimme but i do think it needs to be on here uh we've talked a lot about crime movies and now we're going to talk about a film that really only has one crime and is mostly about the cynicism at the heart of the Hollywood entertainment complex. And of mm. course we were talking about Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> okay. Good uh, good choice. Good Sunset choice. Boulevard is really weird. It's Even one, today, if you watch it for the first time, you'd say this movie is really weird. It's one of the best of all movies. I agree. <laughs> it was uh, directed and co-written by Billy Wilder, the Some Like It Hot guy. Yo, Billy, Billy Wilder, Wilder was Wilder all over he, the place because he, he also did uh, Ace in the, the Hole, Ace in the Hole, and The Apartment. So yeah, he yeah. worked in uh, all kinds of movies. Yeah, he worked on a lot of different genres. Ace in the Hole is also a really, really great film noir mm. about the journalism industry. I was torn between putting Ace. In the hole or Sunset mm. Boulevard on my list. I think just Sun- see them both. Sunset Boulevard is, I guess, more of the noir film. Yeah, it's just a different kind. It's a yeah, different kind. Just, um, it, it feels like a noir film just in terms of its. Well, look. it feels like Billy Wilder is. You know, with Ace in the Hole, he's telling the story. With Sunset Boulevard, it feels like he's like letting you peek behind his curtain. Like he yeah. knows the industry well enough mm. to know just how bleak it can get. Yeah. Uh, so the film stars William Holden as a struggling uh, screenwriter who is narrating the film. And at the beginning we see his corpse in a, be- in a swimming pool and says, <laughs> let me tell you how I got here. So we, we know the hero is dead. That's a big daring move for a Hollywood movie at the time. Like that's not nowadays it would be noteworthy, but not the weirdest thing ever. Mm-hmm. That's a weird intro for a film from like, what was this, 1950? 1950. That's yeah. a bold intro right there. <laughs> Boom, you're in it. And he is, he's a struggling screenwriter who Excuse basically um, finds himself uh, a rich old lady with, with, Desmond, me- yeah. with means mm-hmm. to take care of him because 
he's a, a shithead, basically. He's a bad human being who is trying to take advantage of someone. But what he doesn't realize is that the person that he has found, Norma Desmond, a failing uh, uh, silent star... Who that, that, in the sound of, well, like, for, former star, like her glory days are long over. I, I phrase that weirdly. Yeah. She was a former big silent star, but mm-hmm. when the sound era hit, she, like many silent stars, didn't make the transition. Mm-hmm. She has a great line. It was like, the, the, I stayed the same size. It was the pictures that got small. I, I am big, she said. Yeah, yeah, you used to be really big. Yeah, I am uh, big. He says, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Gloria Swanson gives one of the great, uh, great <sighs> film performances as the slightly mentally unbalanced modern day Miss Havisham Mm -hmm. essentially from Great Expectations who's been holed up in this gigantic mansion watching her own movies wearing her old uh, costumes and being encouraged by her really bizarre valet Max played by of all people film director Eric Von Stroheim yes you got John Huston in Chinatown and then we got Eric Von Stroheim the director of Greed (laughs) in Sunset Boulevard giving a great performance by the way and so we see William Holden just get sucked into her really weird insular gross world Mm. full of monkey funerals like a monkey (laughs) dies and they have to have a funeral for the monkey and it's really gross it's it's like a Bunuel film for a second it's really bizarre and he starts all of a sudden like he starts actually having like a positive relationship with a young woman. They start mm. co-writing things, and he realizes that maybe he can make a go of it normally, but it turns mm. out he's too far down the rabbit hole yeah, in the world yeah. of Norma Desmond, and things are not going to end well for anybody, and even the industry in general. Like It's cynical about the, its characters, it's cynical about its industry, it's cynical about age, mm. and... Uh, uh, yeah, it's... But it's so exciting to like it's, un- it's breathtaking. Un- yeah, unlike, some, unlike something like Chinatown, which is you know bleak, this is actually uh, it is cynical, but it's not. It, it has a playfulness to it. I, it's it's got a dark sense of humor, but Billy Wilder has a great sense of humor, mm-hmm. and when he tells like a joke with a tragic ending, it's still funny. Yeah, it's just. You feel guilty for laughing, mm. and that's true for a lot of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, it feels just as vibrant today mm. as it did at the time, and um, yeah, yeah, it's, ev- it's an absolute yeah. must-see whether you're into noir, noir or not. And, and everybody knows there's a famous line of dialogue, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, and I'll, I'll leave the context of that if you don't know what it is. But there's a moment that precedes that where uh, that I think is even better than the big... Oh yeah, iconic line where um, like a, a lot of action has happened, and uh, there's a lot of people around the Norma Desmond character, and she's kind of like weeping and clawing at her face and being very dramatic. And they say, "And uh, why don't we move some of the cameras downstairs?" And she kind of perks up and just says very quietly, "Cameras." Like, <laughs> Someone's going to be filming, like, like you can. She's snapped in that moment, mm-hmm. and it's such a. I think that moment is such a sublime acting it's, moment for glorious yeah. one. Cameras. <laughs> All right, we only. Yeah. I, I only got two left, and I think oh. you only do two, right? Oh, well, I got. I actually have a bunch left. Oh, we, really? Yeah, kind of. Did we? Did we skip you a lot? Well, maybe. maybe yeah, well, we let's kinda... let's burn through some more then. Let's, okay. Let's um, you know what? I'm going to go for something a little bit more fun, a little bit more modern. Something you probably saw as a kid. And uh, something that doesn't usually make lists of the great film noirs, even though it is, 
it's Robert Zemeckis who framed Roger Rabbit. I see what you did there. <laughs> who, who, I mean, who framed Roger Rabbit is kind of a parody of noir films. Oh, it's absolutely uh, a parody. It's absolutely it's, evoking noir. It's because yeah. it, it is about a private detective who's sent to find whether or not a famous movie star's wife is cheating on him with a film producer, and how the, another film producer might have murdered him. And it, it's all about who gets property of essentially the ghetto. But Mm -hmm. uh, the ghetto is Toontown. The minorities are cartoon people using state-of-the-art special effects to animate them next to live-action people. And... It's a and, very thinly veiled reference the, to at the time contemporary racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's it, this is kind of a weird comment, but it turns a lot of the ugliness of racism into something that's a lot more palatable without taking the edge off. Yeah, without without get, ruining yeah. the the, the anti racism. Yes, yeah, it's it's not it's not infantilizing racism. It's yeah. but it, it's still there. But at the same time, people are going to see something really kind of fun and playful because. Now we're also seeing like Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse all on screen together, and now they're sort of restaged within the Hollywood machine. And I think right. that's the brilliance of Who Framed well, Roger I, Rabbit. And I think they're also talking about the way that animation mm-hmm. itself was ostracized from the rest of the entertainment community. That's yeah, that's an additional you know, it's, comment. It's not respected. Mm-hmm. It is considered disposable entertainment by a lot mm-hmm. of people behind the scenes. Yeah, it's just a sort of kiddie st- stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna. Here's what I'm gonna say about this. Mm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a brilliant motion picture and a fantastic achievement in motion picture visual effects. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree that it's actually noir. I think it's evoking noir, but okay. the reason why I don't agree that it's a noir oh. is that ultimately it is a. It, like Casablanca, it's about overcoming cynicism. Bob Hoskins mm. ends up finding his sense of humor again at the end, and everything yeah. ends happily. And there are characters who are indeed just truly altruistic. Bob Hoskins is not a morally conflicted character. He's just sad. Yeah. Roger Rabbit didn't actually kill anybody. He was framed, and mm-hmm. at no point is he tempted to do anything terribly wrong. He's just... I mean, he's a victim, but he's also gets to be heroic at the mm-hmm. end. So I'll agree that there are elements of it, and I probably deserve at least an honorable mention yeah, on I, any I, list, but I, I don't agree. know if I put it in my top ten. I disagree I, with you. I agree that it, do, it does have a happy ending, which is, is antithetical to the genre in general. And by the but happy it, ending, it, I mean it, mega happy ending, mm-hmm. where everything turns out fine, the bad mm-hmm. guys are defeated. And yeah, there's but, always uh, some compromise. I, I do admire, though, this attempt to... <sighs> Picked uh, cartoon movie stars as more or less swept up in the dark political uh, machinations of the people who sort of live above them in different classes. Yeah. Now, yeah, there's like cartoonish villains. It's a cartoon world. It's fine. It's fine to play a little broad yeah. when the characters are literally cartoons. I'm fine with that. That's not my objection. Yeah. And I don't. I'm not objecting to the film at all. I think the film is brilliant. Okay. I just disagree with the with the categorization of okay. proper noir. Okay. I think it evokes noir without actually being it's, one, I but think fair enough. Even if you see it as a noir parody or a noir send-up or a noir pastiche, I think it's fair to l- put it on a list with great noirs. Okay, fair well, let's do, how, many, how many more have you got? Uh, let's see. One, I just... Th- three, but I revealed one of them already. Okay, so that was okay. Well, okay. Well, so, tell me, give me, give me your, give me one yeah, more that isn't your favorite. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, that's ten. Okay, um, just I don't know how we got so off the list. Uh, so uh, there was a few others. That, my most recent. I'll, how about I list my most recent film? What's your most uh, it's recent from, film? Uh, it's from, and again, this is arguably noir, but it is about a real life crime, and it is about how crime can consume the investigator. Mm. Uh, even more so than the damage the criminal did. I know, Stuck. And I'm talking about David Fincher's Zodiac. 
Yeah, I, I I didn't really think of this as a noir, but mm-hmm. I, saw, I I got a peek at your list before we started, and I saw it okay. and I'm like, I see it. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, I'm not going to fight that. Because yeah. it is about sort of the moral emptiness of crime. First of all, the, the Zodiac Killer famously murdered several people in San Francisco in the 70s mm-hmm. and was never apprehended. Yeah. And it was a really tantalizing case because, A, people were living in dread. Uh, the Zodiac had a really peculiar M.O., he, uh, a witness said that he showed up like in a hood with like almost a superhero symbol on his chest yeah. to kind of announce himself, and also he, like a Batman villain, sent puzzles to the San Francisco Chronicle saying, "Here's how you'll figure out my crimes. Just print these puzzles," and they they did. It seems harmless to print a puzzle, and they figured it's you know within the city's safety interests. Yeah, and who knows? Someone and, could yeah, maybe so, solve somebody this puzzle actually solved the puzzle. The and, and, yeah, and they figured it out and. Um, yeah, and oh, the cartoonist uh, in the movie played by Jake Gyllenhaal, the cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle, be- takes a really, in- really uh, intense interest in it, and actually begins. Uh, his name is Graysmith. Uh, ended up really de- over the course of many years delving into the details of the crime and trying to figure this out, just because he couldn't let let it alone. Mm-hmm. He had to figure out what was going on, and so many. And what I love about the film is it's a long film. It's like two hours and 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it really is about how crime cools after a while and people just don't care after a while. People died. There are actual victims here. Yeah. And yet, once the sensationalism had worn off, you realize that there's nothing left. And the, the crimes just sort of emptied everybody out. And you stop caring about the death. And the crimes themselves were more successful than the terror they were... Uh, you know, the terror on the victims is one thing. The terror on the families of the victims was another thing. But the ultimate cynicism that was left behind after a generation mm-hmm. was just as harmful. Yeah. it's a really good point. Yeah. I love Zodiac. I think we both called the uh, Zodiac... It's one, one of the best films of the 2000s. I think, yeah. I think I put it as my number one, yeah. but yeah, it's, we both put it on our list. And... Um, yeah, fair enough. I really wasn't thinking of it as a noir, but you're right, it totally is. Right. Um, my, uh, oh, so you got two left. I got I have, two left. Uh, one, two. Uh, two. I have three left. You have three yeah. left. Okay, give me, your, give me one more. Okay. Um, we've talked about this film before, uh, going back to French noir. This is the best heist movie ever made. It's Jules Dessin's Rafifi. Yeah, okay, fair uh, enough. Which is essentially straight up heist there's not yeah. a lot of frills to it uh, this uh, was at a time when the heist movie was still a really fresh genre there weren't yeah. a lot of entries as we knew it where mm-hmm. the entire point was a bunch of people get together they plan a heist they execute a heist yeah, and there's the, fallout from the heist and because it's a heist movie it takes place in kind of a seedy world of criminals who are you know experienced in certain kinds of things uh, I love in heist movies where they talk about how they're going to beat the various alarms and things and how they're going to burrow through. Well, all of the details of a heist are always very fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven is great. Yeah. How, how are we going to get down this laser elevator shaft? There's a laser elevator. I don't care. It's fun. Yeah, that's exa- I'm totally with you. We're going to hide it. Solving impossible yeah. problems. Exactly. Those are always fun and, and, stories. And yeah, the, cleverly solving an impossible problem. And, always and, fun. And that's what Rafifi is based on. Uh, they do all of the planning. They try to figure out how to get around all of these problems. They go about it. Of course, the unexpected things come up. There is maybe a 30-minute sequence in the middle where there's no dialogue at all, and it's just the heist, and they have to do it in complete silence. And it's riveting. There's no and, yeah. music either. It's yeah, yeah. really It's, it's really just daring. them going about step-by-step step this heist, and you can't take your eyes off the screen. It's so damn good. 
Yeah. I've heard there there was like some some guy who wrote a book about '90s movies talking about how he saw Rafifi and thought it was kind of boring. And um, I think that's a lot of people from younger generations look at older art mm-hmm. and sometimes find it, um, you know, a little on the slow, outside. Yeah, yeah well, slow. But I, I think not, I think slow isn't even really the fundamental issue. It's just such a different style uh-huh. that you're not accustomed to it, and you can be more distracted by it than you are mm-hmm. involved. Um, Rafifi is a film that I think works better in a theater where you are yeah, just you're, where you're captive. Yeah, where you're captive, and it feels like you're not just watching people do something quietly. You are in the room with them. You're mm. in a silent room where, like the people in the film, no one's going to say a thing. Mm. And if someone dropped something right now, like if someone dropped their coke bottle, everyone <laughs> in the audience goes, "Shh." It's like watching a quiet place. Remember when we watched a quiet place together, mm. and like. The uh, the movie with the monsters that'll kill you if you make any noise. So a lot of the movie is really really quiet. Watching a quiet place in a crowded theater was really exciting because you got to see people train themselves to be quiet again. They're so yeah, used to movies yeah. being loud and noisy so they that shift around and eat and yeah, stuff, maybe whisper to comments. their friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, every single time someone fucking talked, everyone could hear it and it was awkward. So they stopped after five <laughs> minutes, and then it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Rafifi's kind of the same way. Um, right. So, yeah, if you get to see it in the theater, every once in a while they do re-release it. It's that big a film. Yeah. It, it, go it, see it. But it goes, it's still great it goes through the art house circuit pretty frequently. Do me a favor. Right? Get the cat off the counter. I'll get the cat off the counter. Thank you. Tell, you. tell me about it. I'm going to... My, my number... This is probably my number two pick is just because it is. And I think it is my pick for the best neo-noir. Okay. Uh, and that's no... There's no shortage of great neo-noirs. That we didn't even talk about all of them. I didn't bring up like Nightcrawler or Devil in a Blue Dress or God Baby oh, yeah. Gone. I, I almost put Devil in a Blue Dress on my list. Really excellent motion picture. Carl, Carl Franklin's film. If I'd seen it more recently, I might, but it's just been a bit. I didn't more feel comfortable talking about it. Easy Rollins films, please. Why the fuck why, has there why, only been one? Why weren't there like 12 Easy Rollins films? I, where's it? Easy Rollins TV series. That's what I want. There that, you would, go. that would kill on like Amazon <laughs> or Netflix. Where is that well, shit? I, Come on. I'd love to see more movies just because I want to see Denzel. I know he's older now. But, but there are older Easy old, Rollins older stories. Easy Rollins. Why not? Yeah. Anyway, uh, make it happen, Hollywood. I'm dead fucking serious about this. Um, but uh, for my money, the best neo-noir is Wachowski Starship's Bound. <laughs> I knew you were going to put this on your list. I love Bound. Mm. I love Bound more than certain relatives I have. Um, <laughs> Bound was the first feature film directed by uh, Lillian Lana Wachowski before mm-hmm. they had changed their names. Um, it is incredibly sexy, incredibly stylish, very, very funny, suspenseful as hell, brilliantly photographed. Mm-hmm. Everything about Bound works. I don't think there's a flaw in the film. And if you come at me with like, well, if you look at that shot right there, the the glass is somewhere else, like a little continuity oh, error, continuity I errors. don't care. Yeah. Infinitesimal problem. This movie is damn near perfect. Uh, it stars Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. Jennifer Tilly is uh, the trophy wife mm. of a mafia goon played by the great Joe Pantoliano. Mm. She uh, lives in a big apartment complex, and the super is Gina Gershon, who is an ex-con. She basically messes up her own plumbing in order to get Gina Gershon into her apartment so that she can seduce the hell out of Gina Gershon. Boy, is that hot. <laughs> and Gina Gershon, of course, doesn't want anything to do with it because Gina Gershon, she's not stupid. Gina Gershon is a 
tidal wave of queer energy. Oh yeah, in this movie. Yeah, and and Jennifer Tilly, but in a different way. Like they're very yeah. different characters. Um, they end up having an affair, and you think you know where this is going, and Jennifer Tilly is going to pull a body heat on Gina Gershon or something. That's not where it's going at all. Nope. Uh, Joe Pantoliano ends up involved in a really horrible crime, and now there's a fuck ton of money. In their apartment. And they come up with a scheme to get mm. that money. The Wachowskis come up with a great way to do the scene where we're planning the heist and then we're going to just get into the heist. And you realize the heist has already begun. <laughs> you thought you were at the planning stage? No, we're getting going here. This movie's fucking on freight train. Um, stylish. Mm. Erotic. From a perspective we almost never see in noir. Mm. Brilliantly acted unpredictable like the way that things start going pear-shaped uh towards the end of the film is mm. really very special yeah. Luca, get off the coffee table i was uh, when this movie came it came out in 1996 and i was in college at the time and i was majoring in acting because i thought i was gonna be an actor you are an actor in uh, my heart I, it's sweet of you to say but uh I, I it took me a little while to realize i'm not talented and you're, uh, you're good uh, you're one of the better actors on the schmodown how's that that's fair. That's sweet of you to say. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not fair, but sweet of you to say. Um, but I'm watching all the movies I was watching at the time. I was w watching through that lens. Like I am an actor and what role would I play? And I just was smacking my lips at Joey pants because I wanted oh to I, like, that's the kind of role I wanted to play when I was like 18, 19 years old was this kind of scumbag. Great character. scumbag character. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. So, you know, I, I, it is about the Jennifer Tilly character, the Gina Gershon character, and sort of their plans and their schemes and how they're, like, subverting masculinity. Yeah. And uh, given what we know about the directors, there's a lot more going on there than oh, we absolutely. think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really unlocks yeah. a lot of it, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I appreciated that the man wasn't necessarily this... Dis like, it would have worked fine if he was a dis this disposable element, but I liked that mm. Joe, Joe Pantoliano, Pantoliano brought a lot of... Uh, dynamic character to that role that yeah. wasn't necessarily even in the script. It could have just been his performance. No, I no, I think it's in the script. Mm. I think he's an unpredictable character with a lot more mm. deviousness and a lot more uh, subtle cruelty <laughs> than you give him yeah, credit for yeah. at the beginning. You think he's... Honestly, I think casting Joey Pantoliano was... Mm. A stroke of genius because at the time he was just a character actor. Mm. And so you see him in the movie and you think, oh, he's not going to be important. Yeah. Like, no, he's... He's the, the, I called it a freight train. He's the car parked on the tracks. He's very dangerous. Yeah. Like it's, that's not a good, that's not a good person to have in your way. Um, so yeah, Bound is absolutely brilliant. If you haven't seen Bound, stop what you're doing. See mm. Bound, mm -hmm. come back. We have two more movies to talk about. Yeah. Because we need to talk about your number one. Uh, my, my number one is Double Indemnity. Yeah. I, Surprise! I, I mentioned it already. Uh, Double Indemnity is... Uh, the or example of noir. It has everything you need. Um, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray uh, play a pair of lovers. She's married, uh, and they have to off her husband uh, in order to be together and also to get a bunch of money. The double indemnity of the title refers to an insurance, uh, an, clause. Yeah, an insurance clause that if... Uh, if her spouse dies under a very particular set of circumstances, the insurance company will pay out double. Yeah. And this is like such stupid movie machinations, but we believe it when we're watching the movie. If he dies on a train, then the insurance will pay double. So they have to arrange a way to murder Barbara Stanwyck's husband on a train. Yeah. And Fred McMurray and is an insurance investigator, so he knows how it all works. Yeah. And Problem is... Mm -hmm. 
He's not in on it with his partner, and his partner is played by Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. And soon enough, Edward G. Robinson is investigating his case. And he has to Oh, that's great. (laughs) Um, Now, this was a big shock to me because this was the first time I saw Fred McMurray as, like, a heavy. Yeah. I was used to seeing Fred McMurray in, like, the absent-minded professor, and he was kind of like a joyous doofus character. Yeah, he didn't always do that. He was in some pretty heavy films. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm popping this in. It's like, oh, look, it's the absent-minded professor. Holy shit! (laughs) He just killed a guy in a train! He's not supposed to be a murderer who kisses people. (laughs) Can we just do a movie called The Murderer Who Kisses People? Like, <laughs> sure. PG-rated film noir. The Murderer Who Kisses People. Oh, no. Cooties. There, no, there, there is a film called A Kiss Before Dying. But, uh, yeah. Um, no, Double Indemnity is great. Double yeah, it's, Indemnity it's, it's, is another... It's another Billy Wilder joint. It's another uh, production yeah. code film. But... So they can't show the sexuality the way that Mm. Body Heat does. This is why I put it together with Body Heat. Because with Body Heat, now that we're in the era where you can have an R-rated movie and fill it with all of the visceral lust Mm. in order to sell just how much passion this character is filled with that they will make these horrible criminal mistakes. Mm. Double Indemnity doesn't have that option. Mm. It can't show you sex. It can barely show kissing. Right. How do we make their attraction so profound that people get it? And the answer is you cast Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just great casting and great acting. Like, they talk around it a lot. They're, they're constantly talking about, you it's, know, yeah. how much they want to be with each other, but you know what they really mean. And it's, it's, it's all in Barbara Stanwyck's eyes and her posture and her li- just her entire performance uh, is... I hate to speak in these terms because they're so lascivious, but mm. it, when, when you're talking about a character who's trying to be seductive, then I think it's appropriate. But she mm. seduces the audience. She does. And, uh, and that's important for the tone of the film. It's important for the plot of the film. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not saying she seduces the audience in this lascivious sort of way. I think that's... Barbara Stanwyck and the character well, both know what they're doing. She, there's a word we, yeah. there's a term we actually haven't somehow used mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast when we're talking about film noir, which is uh, the femme fatale. There you go. The femme fatale in a film noir is typically considered uh, the sexy woman who gets you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's actually a very, I think, very limited view of the femme fatale. I think the best femme fatales in in noir, particularly older noir, where they took place in an even more uh, sexist time, mm-hmm. are women who are smart, confident, in control, and are marginalized by society so the only way they can achieve their greatness is by manipulating men and i think the best film noir femme fatales are if you just turn your head a little bit and not look at it from the macho point of view that most of them are told from Mm. the femme fatales are often the heroes or at least they would be if the story were told from their perspective what i admire about sort of the the femme fatale character is Mm. they're typically the characters with the most agency yeah and uh, unfortunately the femme fatale kind of like slasher movies brought with it uh, maybe an unintended moralizing uh, element. A sexist moralizing element. Uh, sec- that that yeah. is a sexist moralizing element. Uh, yeah. You know, you watch early slasher movies, they're all about titillation and exploitation. They're all about we'll, we'll get the, people naked and we'll stab them. The then, majority. The I majority, know there's, yeah. there's a couple of exceptions there, but let's be fair here. The majority. The majority. But then, yeah, you start looking at the, the whole genre and you start seeing sort of the trends that were entrenched therein. And you do get to see that the murderers are killing the people who are committing vices. Yeah. So there is a, this moralizing quality that the filmmakers probably didn't intend, at least not initially. 
um, except for Friday the 13th, which is explicitly about that. Yeah. Um, I think the femme fatale was supposed to just add an element of sexuality. And they were there, they exist in a, in a morals-free universe, mm-hmm. this sort of amoral universe where there are no heroes. And they are there to uh, take agency, team up with somebody, usually exploit another person, and get what they want out of the world. Right. You look at the entire trend, you see that the femme fatales are typically up to something kind of villainous, and they're also the most sexual characters. Right. And you start to see this uh, kind of side effect form where the femme fatales are uh, used to vilify female sexuality in general. And that is unfortunate because I think femme fatales are far more, in generally speaking, are far more complex than that. Agreed. Um, anyway, uh, so that's any more thoughts on your number one, or should we go on? Uh, to I mean, double, just see double indemnity. You should. It's yeah. really great. Um, also, good double feature with the postman always rings twice. Mm. Similar plot, but I do agree. Double indemnity is the superior of the two. Yeah. Um, my number one. Boy, was this tricky. Like I was trying to like think of like I, I know we didn't go in any particular order, but like trying to figure out the number one. And I almost picked the Maltese Falcon. I almost picked Bound, mm. but I was thinking about what's the noir that gets the seediness of the genre mm. that gets the 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 moral failure the sense of uh sort of ethical and and you know practical mm. hopelessness and um also understands you know the 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 macho-ness but the, also the sexuality and the strong characters and male and female and goes in unexpected directions and i just had to pick kiss me deadly okay You've seen Kiss Me Deadly. I haven't seen Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, my God! Well, you I, haven't seen Kiss Me Deadly. All right. Okay, yeah. All right, done. I, okay, we're good. So when he's going to say I, it... I don't we'll, know Kiss Me Deadly. I, I can't believe I, you I didn't know Kiss Me Deadly. I, I don't actually. even know what it's about. I, I know oh, um, so little about this film. Uh, it's directed by Robert Aldrich, mm-hmm. who did Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Oh, golly, I love Aldrich. Jane. Yeah. Aldrich has a weird career. Yes, he does. Cause, he cause did a lot of different stuff. He did, like, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but then he also did The Longest Yard. Yeah. See, like, kind of vacillated between these aggressively masculine films and essentially these aggressively feminine films. Mm-hmm. He's got a really interesting career, Robert Aldrich. Uh, so it it stars um, Ralph Meeker as Mike Hammer, one of the all-time great uh, noir detectives. Mm. Mike Hammer's had a lot of his stories uh, adapted mm. into various... Uh, the various TV shows and movies. Yeah. Mickey Spillane wrote the original uh, books and novels. Um, Mike Hammer is a private investigator. He's in Los Angeles. Very tropey. We know where we are here. Uh, and uh, he and his assistant, they're also lovers. Uh, her name is Velda. Maxine Cooper is maybe the sexiest person in the film noir <laughs> outside of Bound and Body Heat. She's just so ooh, alive. Um, he is on like an isolated, like kind of like desert road. And he runs into Cloris Leachman wearing nothing but a trench coat. My, my. This okay. is a young Cloris Leachman. Uh, she is ranting and raving. Uh, she may have uh, escaped from a mental institution. Uh, and then she is uh, taken away by mysterious thugs and tortured to death. And she then they is. push All his right. car off a cliff with her body in it. Um, it's right. crazy, and so and so as you can imagine, he has unanswered questions. So mm-hmm. even though he's mostly doing divorce cases and stuff, he decides to start investigating what the hell is happening. Uh, and like a lot of film noir, especially detective stories, he goes from place to place, 
meets people in various uh, positions of authority in both uh, the criminal world and the seemingly high society world. And uh, you haven't seen it, so I don't want to... You, no. you don't know how this movie ends, do you? I, I, I don't know how this movie begins. I know nothing about this movie. Oh, I can't believe you know how this movie ends. Okay. Um, the, the MacGuffin for Kiss Me Deadly is one of those rare MacGuffins that I don't think is a MacGuffin. I think it's actually important to the plot. Like, when you find out, like, what everyone is all on about, and I'm not going to say it's like the Maltese Falcon, but there is a thing Mm -hmm. that people are all, this is all revolving around one thing. Mm -hmm. When you find out what it is, you're like, holy shit, that Mm -hmm. is not a typical MacGuffin. That is a very odd thing that is doing some very odd things, and it leads to a finale, which is... Boy, is it fucking bleak. But it is bleak in the most intense fucking way. And it ends perfectly. Like, it should be an anticlimax. Instead, it's just the perfect climax. Mm. Because it, it ends without hope. But okay. <laughs> it ends with an intense fight for it. Mm. But it ends without hope. Like, at all. Okay. Um it, it starts off like a very conventional noir and gets weirder as it goes on. Um, and yeah, it is a, a real stunner, but it's the, it's the feeling of sleaze. We talked a lot when we talked about body mm-hmm. heat at the beginning, we talked about how everyone's sweaty. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's maybe not sweaty in Kiss Me Deadly, but you get the impression they really need a shower. <laughs> like they've, they've had a long day. They've, they're That's living, a, they're, yeah. they're, they're all very physical. They're all very intense. There's a lot of sexuality. That's just like. People just leave it, like they get up from a chair and they leave some sexuality there and don't even think about it later because they got so much. Like, (laughs) it's intense, it's gross, it's alluring, and the plot is very unusual. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I'm actually really surprised you haven't seen this, and I think I own this, I need to loan you this, because this is such a great movie. Okay. I really want you to see it, I really want you to tell me what you think, because I love Kiss Me Deadly so goddamn much. Uh, Kiss Me Deadly is is a noir that... Was you know it's it was an independent production. It got kind of overlooked at the time, and then gradually found an audience. It's finally on Criterion edition. I think it might be on Criterion mm-hmm. channel. I, I don't know. They don't have their complete library yeah. on there. Um, I, think, I think it is. I think it's on. If it's the on channel, there, go check yeah. that out. You, I think you'll thank me because I, I if think, you like any of the other movies we recommended, it, it is okay. it is November, and I think they just culled up all of their yeah. noir product. That would be the time. smart thing to do if I were them. So, um, yeah, Kiss Me Deadly is my pick. If I had to pick mm. rapier to my throat, <laughs> that a fencing foil mm. to my ear, what's the biggest noir mm. ever made? I would make the argument for Kiss Me Deadly. Okay, um, but there's a lot it's, of great it's, noir. It's out a there. big, big blind spot in my education. Okay. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of film noirs. I had a few runners up from sort of the classic era, like the uh, Fritz Lang's *The Big Heat*. Mm-hmm. Uh, Never saw that. Really one. terrific. Uh, *Zodiac* was on, or mm-hmm. uh, *Bound*. Excuse me, was on my short list. Yeah. Um, uh, but I have to admit, and I've said this before, sort of the, the quote, the golden age of Hollywood, like the classic Hollywood films from the 1940s is really underrepresented in my film education. Okay. There's a lot of films from, like, American films from that era that I just never bothered to see. Okay. Because during my education, I was delving way too far into, like, Japanese cinema and Swedish cinema. Well, we all have a blind spot. For me, it's uh, uh, European cinema, particularly Mm. from, like, France and Germany and Mm. that kind of thing, and maybe a little bit of Italy. Um, So when it came time, it's like, you you can watch... 
uh, you know, Veronica Voss from Fassbender, mm. or you can watch Mr. Blanding's Build His Dream House. Guess where I'm going to go. And Mr. Blanding's yeah. Build His Dream House is really funny. Um, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm just the, letting the, you know. The, the point is I, I kind of was ignoring that right. for a long time in favor of other right. things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rattle off some mm. titles. I'm going to okay. highlight maybe one or two of the sentence, but I just want, these are all fantastic movies, and if you love noir mm. and you haven't seen any of these, I highly, highly, highly recommend them. Uh, the original Michael Caine, Get Carter. Okay. Is a yeah, fucking yeah. phenomenal film noir that's mm. really just pulpy and amazing. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, the Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, film about. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think it counts. I think mm. it counts. I think the good get victimized and the bad are just that, bad. That, that could also be categorized as like an espionage thriller, which I, is a little bit of a different animal. I, I, but, yeah. think, I think they're on the same page. Um, mm. Let's see what we got here. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre almost made my list. Some people consider it more of an adventure film, but it's yeah. absolutely about moral it's a, decay. It's another one I haven't seen. Uh, Charlie Varick starring Walter Matthau as <laughs> a bank robber. <laughs> Walter Matthau is a bank robber, and he's yeah. sexy. It's great. And it's from the 70s. Uh, one I wanted to include on my list, but again, this is more of... It, it, it's not quite a noir film, even though it is a heist movie, but it's The Taking of Pelham 123. Yeah, I don't think it's noir, but it's, it's great. It's, like, it's this like modern urban noir, if anything, but yeah. yeah, it's more than anything. It's sort of like a, a heist flick. But yeah, yeah that's it's, it's another Malter Mathau film where he plays just a complete asshole mm-hmm. who is also a, a, a transit cop and has to deal with uh, heist on a, a subway. Oh car. my God, Luca! Oh, pause it. And we're back. Luca's knocking drinks over now. Yeah, big, just, full drinks. We just had to we clean just, up the whole we kitchen. We just had to stop the podcast to clean up a mess, and we, we left it in because you, we want you to know the drama. You, you, we know you're here mostly for the cats. That's that's yeah. fine. Um, anyway, uh, I forget what I was saying. Let's move on to a couple more recommendations. Right. Uh, real, real fast, uh, if you ever get a chance to see Laura, it is a film that was a big influence on Twin Peaks. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about uh, a, a woman who's dead and everyone's obsessed with her and you won't believe where it goes from there. Mm. Um, early role for Vincent Price. It's really oh, terrific. great role for Vincent yeah. Price. Um, let's see what we got here. I'm uh, a big fan on the more recent front. Uh, Gone Baby Gone is exquisitely morally complicated. Yeah. Really yeah, great yeah. film, actually. I, I really liked Gone Baby Gone. Um, we mentioned Devil in a Blue Dress. I thought that one was really terrific. It's a film from the 90s. Luca, are you seriously? Are we seriously? Okay, <laughs> no, fine. Luca is Luke, oh ready for us to be done. Let's, make, let's wrap it up. Let's list some Five uh, titles real fast. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Okay. The Night of the Hunter. Yes! Great it's a really movie. terrific movie. I'm not quite um, sure if it's noir, but it's certainly adjacent, yeah, and that's and, fine. And I think that's all I had on my list. Okay. Oh, and, uh, and Fritz Lang's M, uh, first serial yeah. killer movie, is really, really terrific and indispensable in film history. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, Nightmare Alley. Guillermo del Toro is actually remaking this. I'm super excited about it. He might <laughs> okay. be able to use the original ending, which is even darker, but okay. it's pretty damn dark, so it's really, really great. Thank you, Luca. I get it. He's playing, uh, he's playing hockey with his bowl. <laughs> okay, we got Branded to Kill, which is a mm. great noir oh, about Hitman. Oh, Seijin Suzuki. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing motion picture. Oh, here, uh, here's uh, one I, I wanted to mention. Stray Dog. Oh, there you uh, go. Cur- Kurosawa's Stray Dog. About a co- it's a really hot day. There's always hot heat involved. Uh, it's about a cop who loses his gun and the adventures he has to go on to get his gun back. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people say The French Connection is a noir. I don't entirely agree. Mm-hmm. I think To Live and Die in L.A. is thing, yeah. definitely a noir. For sure. And it's really fucking awesome. You, and arguably a better car chase than French Connection. Uh, lateral. They're about arguably. the same. Uh, let's see, we got a uh, touch of evil. We didn't mention it. It's fantastic. Orson Welles, yeah, gorgeous. Touch of evil. Uh, if you also love Orson Welles' uh, film noir stuff, you should check out The Lady from Shanghai, uh, which is an yeah. underappreciated film. I feel um, it's, uh, the st- 
it's not so engaging on a story level, but it is really engaging on a craft level. And I, I think, think I think the Orson last Wells thirty was, minutes are as exciting as any noir. because well, yeah, it's like the whole mirrors sequence. Uh, but yeah, yeah Orson Welles uh, was still really interested in exploring sort of his own uh, filmmaking panache, and I think he's just mm. as creative in Lady from Shanghai as is in Citizen Kane. And I yeah. think it's, it's interesting to explore just on that level. All right, and uh, just a couple more. Uh, I know you're not a big fan, but i got to give a shout-out to Blade Runner, which I think is a great sci-fi noir. Yeah, I know you're not a big yeah. fan. I don't care. Uh, I don't think either of us mentioned Kiss Kiss Bang Bang directly. I, I but... did just say it, but yeah. Okay, well, I'm taking <laughs> just, our, just in a our moment list. ago. Okay, yeah. Kiss, I'm trying to, trying to wrap things up so we can right. feed the cats so they'll stop complaining. Uh, mm. And then uh, last but not least, definitely not least, came very close to my top ten uh sweet smell of success uh which um, is yeah uh, yeah i wouldn't have considered that but sure yeah, yeah I, that's a noir. I, I think in the same way that like sunset boulevard or like zodiac are yeah. it looks at the uh, moral dissolution within an industry and in that case yeah. it's the publishing industry yeah, and there's, uh, there's no like act, like outright criminality in that movie there's like a few things that aren't on the up and up there's gross manipulation yeah. there's uh absolute corruption mm. uh and uh and burt lancaster was never better um, so, uh, yeah, those are our picks for the best noirs ever. We hope you enjoy them. If you haven't seen any of them, we hope you check them out. And if you do check them out, please let us know what you thought. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you want to vote for next month's The Iron List, uh, we will have a Patreon poll up probably at the beginning of December. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't decided what's going to be on that poll yet because this whole segment of the Critically Acclaimed uh, Network is a little new. Uh, but we'll figure something out and we'll get it out there in the next couple of weeks. But it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and uh, poke around. We have a ton of stuff over there. We have exclusive uh, podcasts about um, every single nominee for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. We're doing a whole podcast cataloging all of them. Uh, we're doing a podcast in which we review every single Star Trek episode. Uh, we've got commentary tracks, all kinds of stuff. So just check that out. And... Um, I guess that's it. Uh, if you have anything you want to sort of comment on or uh, discuss, you can send us an email and we might read it on our email uh, or, or fan mail podcast. We've got mail. The email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Uh, nope, that's everything. We got a bunch more. If you do go to our Patreon, uh, you can get all piles and piles and piles and piles of content because that, that's that's how we do and I'm not sure how to end an episode about noirs so I'll just say meh see meh more of a gangster picture I wanna go to the midnight show I'm sorry what <laughs>